right everyone welcome back to 80s high the podcast that's back for season four after that summer hiatus and we came back and what did we find but a nervous system in the hallway oh my gosh what could it turn into there's only one way to find out and that's a listen to the premiere season four episode of 80s high i'm chris and i'm ben we're back everybody how exciting benjamin great to see you Woof. Everybody strap in. It's our senior year. We're going to be cutting class. There's going to oh be gosh. hijinks on professors. Oh, you know, hiding, hiding principal's sports cars on the roof. Skip day. Oh, We're, yeah. There's going to be a lot of skip day. I mean, oh, we might gosh. be a little bit lazy. I don't know. It's senior year. <laughs> Anything could happen. Uh, you got to go out with a bang. This is graduation year, man. We got to make the yearbook. Absolutely. And we can't do it just the two of us. I mean, we could, but why not have a third person to join us? Mr. Corey, he's back. You might remember him from our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode last season. Well, he is the inspiration for today's topic, Watchmen. Corey, welcome back to 80s High. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. So our prank should be we paint ourselves blue and streak the quad. Is that? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So much blue wiener. I was not prepared for that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a very like adults smurf prank. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is the grown up smurf version. This would be great. I was going to say, what would people think we really are? Are we. uh, Blue man group? Oh, duh. Of course. Blue man group. Oh, man. Well, you know, summer always ends too soon. We're back in school and. We have, you know, a few things to catch up on before we get into the topic. It's homeroom. You know, we've got to ease into things. Um, What was going on this summer? Any 80s encounters that either of you would like to share? Corey, please go first. It would be extremely rude for me to cut you off as a host. You're the guest. What happened in your 80s summer, man? Yeah. I've got to follow up on the last episode. I did go see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. Yes. It is a fantastic film. It's not only a good turtle film, it's just a good animated film. They take up um, the same kind of like innovative animation style that you see in like the Spider-Verse movies. Cool. Of like, right. It's like very sketchy and it looks like painterly or drawn. Like my favorite part is like there'd be like a, a light and the rays from a light would be like squiggles. Almost like crayon squiggles and stuff. And it's also yeah. just a very simple turtle story. Like it's not complicated they're turtles, they retell the origin, there's some mutants, there's some danger, and they also, they act like teenagers. Okay, that was going to be my question. That was Seth Rogen's goal, is to put the teenage in TMNT. He felt that was absent, and you're saying felt. Yeah, I have two, I have a, two teens, I have a 13 and 15-year-old. My 15-year-old, after like the previous Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle episode that I did, I had gotten like Last Ronin and some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I was reading it, and my oldest got hooked like on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's right. And she was so excited for the movie, and she loved it too. Amazing. It's really good. I mean, there's it's not com- like I said, it's not complicated. It's like a very straightforward, well done Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. I recommend it. 
That's awesome. Benjamin, how about you? Yeah, I mean, my, I won't go into like deep detail, but I was trying to catch up on a bunch of 80s movies that was insulting to people that I haven't seen yet. So, so far, I made it through Working Girl, Tom Hanks' version of Dragnet, Bachelor Party, another young Tom Hanks movie. Uh, and then actually, I've been really enjoying the Beverly Hills Cop series. I've never seen the Be- Beverly Hills. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the first Ooh, two wild. were awesome. Axel Foley, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Uh, and I also watched the first two, like, Supermans, because we talked about those. You wouldn't have Batman 89 without Superman. So I watched those. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we don't need to get super into it, but there's a bell curve. There's there's a reason, listeners, some of you have never heard of some of those movies. <laughs> and some of you, like, stopped the car to scream, like, how have you not seen Beverly Hills Cop? Like, I get it. I'm catching up. And then also, we got some fan mail, man. We did. We got some corrections. And I want to say, classmate Ron... You should join United Nations. You had the most diplomatic, complimentary way to say, like, I like what you guys are doing, but check your facts. Do your research. Well, and the second one, I have to say, but the second one's all on me. And, well, we'll just get to it. Oh, my goodness. The first one's not really a correction, but just a cool fact he pointed out that uh, Leslie Ann Warren in Clue, who played Miss Scarlet, talks about how she actually really loved her dress for the movie, but she had two versions of it. One that she wore for, like, actual acting and when they had, she wore in the scenes where she had to run between, you know, we're all running between the different rooms. Right. I guess the normal acting one doesn't really hold up that well for athletic uh, endeavors in Clue. So that's a fun fact. Because our, our discussion was that it was so tight that she could not sit down in between right. takes. She had to be like propped up on a board. So. And then all the way back, classmate Ron goes way back into the archives on her episode um, about actually Miracle on Ice. Yeah. Which turns out Ron's a huge horror movie fan. And I believe podcaster. And a podcaster, horror podcaster. Thank you. Not just a fan, but a creator as well. And, you know, we joked about like traditional hockey masks that Jason Voorhees wears with the holes and how you could get like, I think nachos in it or ice cream and everything dripping through at a hockey game. And he did point out... That we mistakenly made reference to Jason's hockey mask in Friday the 13th Part 2. However, as Ron tells us, Jason does not get his iconic mask until Part 3. And in Part 2, wears a burlap sack instead. Let me tell you this. I was so convinced that Ron had something wrong. I was like, oh no, I researched the heck out of that. There's no way on earth. I went back and listened to the episode. I went back to my show notes. How on earth did I screw this up? It is so blatantly clear Jason Voorhees gets it in the third movie. I even made the commercial at the lunch break about part two. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. I'm going to have to go back and issue a correction for that episode. That is egregious. Ron, thank you so much for pointing it out. It was great. And I'm glad you did. And yes, I doubted you, but you were 100% correct. (laughs) Yes, I doubted you. I don't know how I made that mistake. It's wild. But thanks so much for writing in. We We love hearing from our listeners. I'm really disappointed in you, Chris. I just do better next time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's all I've got. It was a lovely summer, but I'm back to be back in the saddle for not just listening to podcasts all summer, but creating them again. Wonderful. The only thing I want to add is we had a great encounter this summer. In fact, uh, as of this recording, just uh, about a week or so ago, one of our guest hosts, our most returning champion guest host, Aaron, who's been on three episodes, including Miracle on Ice, I was in town, and he and Ben got to meet in person, which was very exciting. That was fun. It's weird bridging the reality gap with the virtual podcast gap. Like we came, we I came to an event of yours 
uh, we're like a coworker of yours who listens to 80s High. And she oh, was right. like, oh, you're, you're the podcast band. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, oh, my God, it's so weird to hear your voice coming out of a real human. Like <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess it is kind of weird. It is weird. But it was great. Yeah, there's, there's been a nice blending of reality and virtual. Very, uh, you know, Tron-esque. It's very, you know, it's a good 80s summer of us blending. I love it. It was great. Okay, well, we're we're getting toward the end of Homeroom. We we got to start talking about Watchmen because there's a lot here. Um, but I just want to say, we want to say, we have a handful of really big updates to share for our podcast and for season four. We've talked enough. We don't want to data dump everything at the beginning. You want to listen to the topic. So we're going to sprinkle them throughout. But I do want to just say here, because it will be relevant for Homeroom, Our homeroom announcements are back this season. We took a break from doing them in season three, but they're back by popular demand. And it's always nice to have different voices included on the show. So if you're missing those from seasons one and two, worry not, dear listener, because (laughs) we're going to play those homeroom announcements. What do you say right now, Ben? Ding! Attention 80s high. I'm Jim, and I'm here to share today's homeroom announcements. If you love parachute pants, leg warmers, neon clothes, garbage pail kids, and talking all things 80s, please follow 80s High Podcast on Instagram. Today's lunch menu will be sloppy joes, a fruit cup, and a chocolate milk. If you're loving 80s High, consider supporting the show by dropping a rad review or rating on Apple, telling a classmate to tune in, or even chipping in a few dollars at coffee.com. It sounds like coffee, but it's spelled K-O-F-I. It's fun and easy to do, and it doesn't leave you with that awful coffee breath afterward. No doy. After school today, the Fighting Mogwai's Long Dark team will be competing against the Ghoulies of Horror High. Thank you and have a big time day. Go Mogwai's! Oh, well, that was so much fun to have the announcements back. I do have to say, like, I'm, I'm very jazzed that we uh, we decided to bring it back for this season. I was so sad when we retired it. And I'm st- it just it doesn't feel like 80s high without them. It, it helps set the high school stage. It feels it does. And I felt like we all forgot about the fight in Mogwise, all of our favorite teams. That's right. Go Mogwise. Go yeah, Mogwise. there we go. Boo. There we go. Terrible swimming team, but everything else really good. Gentlemen, let's hop into my replica Archimedes owl ship so we can wing ourselves down the hall to history class and ask the question, who, 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 who watches the Watchmen? Stop it. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Owl, will see you there. No! You know, out of the Batman episode, how much I love a good sci-fi vehicle. So I just love that right at the top. You were calling out Archimedes. That ship, Archie, is the best. It is a solid vehicle, too. It's like everything you want out of it. Yeah, yeah. It's really awesome. All right, everyone. We're in history class where we're going to learn about Watchmen and where it came from. So... What is Watchmen? It is a comic book series. I've heard it referred to as a maxi series. I don't like that word. It's weird. What is a maxi? What's a ma- I've never heard that. It's What's more a than a mini series, obviously, Ben. Everybody knows that. That's ridiculous. Get out of here with this nun. Kids today, I tell you what. Maxi. Corey, uh, are you familiar with this term as a comic book connoisseur? Yeah, I've heard maxi. That's just a weird 
the way to, yeah usually it's mini series or just limited series like you do with a tv yeah. show or something yeah yeah i mean they were in, they were individual issues but they all kind of came together in a compilation and you know i think it was longer novel. than than a mini series normally was in in comics i don't think they were 12 uh-huh. comics long so maybe that's why but yeah i see okay well, uh, regardless, it is a comic book series by British creative team of writer Alan Moore, artist Dave Gibbons, and colorist John Higgins. Watchmen was published monthly by DC Comics in 1986 and 1987 before <laughs> being collected in a single volume edition in 1987. Now, we're going to talk just very high overview of the plot summary. We'll get more into it, but Watchmen depicts an alternate history in which superheroes have emerged in the 1940s and 60s, and their presence has changed history. So the United States wins the Vietnam War, and the Watergate scandal was actually never exposed. Dun, dun, dun. And Nixon ends up being president for like Five, I think at least five terms. King Nixon almost. In the yeah, book. I think he's still president in the 80s. Right. But in the 1970s, superheroes become outlawed and only two are allowed to continue to operate because they agree to work exclusively as agents of the U.S. government. First, we have the comedian, a.k.a. Edward Blake, who is a violent Punisher type militant superhero guy. Sure. Mayhem and destruction. We'll talk a lot about him, I'm sure. And then we have Dr. Manhattan, who's really the only actual superhero with powers. Mm. And these powers are near omnipotent. Dr. Manhattan is a physicist who's caught in a freak accident. His powers include the ability to rearrange matter at will, teleport anywhere in the universe instantaneously, clone himself, see backwards and forwards in time simultaneously, and blow people up with a hand gesture. And speak in existential poetry about what those abilities actually are. Yeah, in a yeah. blue glowing word bubble, no less. So, <laughs> and he can rock a thong too. There's, there's that too. Sometimes, and, sometimes. Oh my gosh, when sometimes. he chooses to, when he's really dressing up for an occasion. Every yeah. panel is thong or dong. Let's just put it that way. Ooh, my there you go. That goodness. works well. So Dr. Manhattan thinks Superman meets Professor X and then throw in like a little Dr. Strangelove because there's a nice, you know, for good Cold War measure. Sure, right. Yeah. The rest of the heroes are forced to retire. This includes Night Owl, a.k.a. Dan Dryberg. Think of a sad, impotent Batman. You have Adrian <laughs> Veidt, a.k.a. Ozymandias. Think Tony Stark, who reveals his identity to the world basically for profit. He becomes a... Successful businessman. The only hero who refuses to retire is Rorschach, a brutal, murderous vigilante clad in a fedora and a white mask covered in inkblot patterns that are constantly shifting. Um, And I I will be honest with you, uh, reading the graphic novel, I did not realize that it actually changed shapes. I was not that observant. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, as we mentioned, Nixon is still president. The Cold War is at a standstill because Dr. Manhattan works for the U.S. The Soviet Union, though, while at that stalemate, is poised to attack Afghanistan. So essentially, the world is on the brink of nuclear war, which is described as still being devastating, even though they do have Dr. Manhattan's potential intervention should the missile start to fly. So again, this is a very joyful kind of sunny situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, it kind of gets swept under the rug here, but Moore and the, and the writing team did recruit previous writers 
from Strawberry Shortcake and Shining Time Station, just to really like get that positive vibe yeah. into watch, you know, really bring that flavor in. You read my mind. I was just going to be talking about all of these, like, <laughs> the Care Bears team that came in. <laughs> right, right. The Care Bears writing team. Yeah, there, there's like an underlying hope and happiness throughout the whole book, right? Very optimistic. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A lot of faith in humanity. Right. And so this is basically all background because the actual plot that starts off is one of these heroes, the comedian, is found murdered. And that is when Rorschach starts to investigate and uncovers a plot to kill and discredit all past and present superheroes. Spoiler alert. So he reaches out and reconnects with these retired associates and starts to uncover this far-reaching conspiracy involving their shared past and catastrophic consequences for the world's future. Dun, dun, dun. That's kind of the little narrative journey that we we kick off with this story. And that's like one of the three main stories in the graphic <laughs> novel. Like there are two <laughs> concurrent other stories happening, which is nuts. Four side yeah, and like subplots yeah, going probably. backwards in time and multiple yeah. generations and all that well, kind of stuff. Yeah. If you tend to believe in time by yeah, the yeah. end of this, you know. Well, yes. I wanted to also set this stage because Corey was going to fill us in with all of his expertise on the history of comic book superheroes and how they might kind of map to these different eras of groups that are presented to us in Watchmen, Corey. Yeah, I think it's important to kind of talk about the history of comic books here because to understand some of the themes of the Watchmen and what Watchmen is in conversation with, it's important to kind of understand where the, all this stuff started. And so you can kind of divide the history of comic book superheroes into ages. Mm. You can divide it into the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Modern Age. I think there's some after that, but we're going to end at the Modern Age. Okay. The Golden Age starts... April 18th, 1938, with the introduction of a little-known superhero, kind of forgotten today. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of him, Superman. I don't know if you've ever heard of oh, the superhero yeah, before. Yeah, Vaguely-ish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard whispers. Really, the whole thing does start off with Superman, which is kind of wild. Like, you, you'd think maybe there was superheroes before that. There were pulp heroes that had costumes and some had powers, but it was really Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster who put it all together and created what we think of as a superhero. And it's kind of amazing that the first superhero is still kind of like the ideal of what a superhero is, right? Right. And Superman proved to be so popular that between 1939 and 1941, there was this like explosion of new superheroes. So Detective Comics... And its sister company, All-American Publications, which would later form DC Comics in the future, they go on to introduce Batman and Robin. So that created by Bob Kane mm -hmm. and Bill Fing Finger. If, you, if Maybe you've heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder Woman, created by William Moulton Marston. The Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, pretty much the whole pantheon of DC superheroes. Most of the popular ones were created during this time. Mm. Over at a competitor, Timely Comics, which would go on later to be Marvel Comics, there's a few that are introduced. You get Captain America and um, Namor the Submariner, who finally was in live action recently, and then the original Human Torch, who doesn't really have anything to do with Fantastic Four. Mm. And then probably the best-selling superhero of the era, which is kind of weird to think of today, is actually the original Captain Marvel. 
So again, Whoa. this has hmm. nothing to do with the Brie Larson Captain Marvel that's in Marvel, um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's now known as Shazam, but he was wildly popular back then. Like Captain Marvel did actually come around, but was like more like the the current Captain Marvel we know, but it was a male character instead of a female character, right? Yeah, the name Captain Marvel is one of the most like fought over superhero names uh, legally. Like okay. it, it started as the Shazam Captain Marvel that you know the the most recent Shazam movies, but then it like somebody didn't remember to to keep the rights, and then it shifted to Marvel, and there's this long protracted battle over it, all that kind of stuff. So interesting. Okay, so that's why Shazam is now called Shazam and not Captain Marvel, and there's this completely whole other different lineage of Captain Marvels out there as well. Huh. Okay. This is why we had you on, man. This is fantastic. Basically, after the war, the kind of the fad of superheroes sort of to fizzle a little bit. The sales started to slow, and then comic books diversified into kind of other genres. They'd been around before too, but and you know, superheroes just weren't the the hot thing anymore. There were like sci-fi, there was westerns, there was romance, horror, and that's kind of the end of the golden age there at the end of the forties. And then there was kind of like this low period, the sort of like interregnum of superhero popularity in the 50s, up until like 1954, when there was this introduction of a supervillain. And this villain's goal was to destroy all superheroes. Oh. This is a real dude named Frederick Wortham. He was a, a psychiatrist. So in 1954, he publishes... Seduction of the Innocent, which is this oh, yes. kind of wild Ooh. title of a book. And it's uh, it's basically a book decrying all this violence and sex and drugs and what he called crime comics, which he kind of lumped out all these, you know, the horror comics in with the superheroes. But he really, he didn't like superheroes in particular. He, according to Dr. Wortham, Superman was a fascist. Batman and Robin, they're two bachelors living together. Obviously, they're gay. Wonder Woman was a lesbian because she kind of had power and independence. And she was also into bondage, which that one was kind of true a little bit. If you know anything about the creator of Wonder Woman, he kind of was into bondage. So that maybe that criticism was a little fair. Interesting. I mean, so was Indiana Jones. I mean, two heroes with whips. Come on. You know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. So there was a lasso of truth. Yeah, lasso of truth. There was a whole thing with that. But. But so this book ended up being so influential that there were actually congressional hearings over the dangers of comic books. Nothing really came of the hearings themselves, but there was so much negative publicity that like 15 comic publishers went out of business the summer after the hearings. This is kind of like McCarthyism for comic book heroes in a way. Like, was that his goal is to like shut all these companies down, basically? I think his goal was he wanted to, wanted to regulate comics. He didn't want to just uh, like end comics altogether, but he wanted to regulate. Got it. So what what ended up really happening, and this is the kind of you see this in other industries, the the publisher decided to self regulate. They're like, all right, all right, we'll regulate ourselves, kind of like the movie industry did with the MPAA and the rating system. Mm-hmm. The comics create the Comics Code Authority or the CCA. But unlike the movie rating system, there's no like G or PG or PG-13. There's just either you're approved or you're not. And stores will sell the book if you've got the approval of the CCA and they won't if you don't. And there's some kind of crazy stuff in the, in the comics code authority, like list of rules. Obviously, some of them are, you know, basic, like no violence, sex, gore, stuff like that. But there's stuff like in every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for misdeeds. 
The next one's kind of crazy, a little bit maybe fascistic itself of policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority, which is crazy stuff. That's not fascism at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> and, and then this other one I thought was funny too is scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead because the term zombie hadn't even been invented yet. Oh, interesting. Torture, vampires, vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Which is fun. What's with all my cryptozoids? Why, why, what's wrong? why can't we have those? I know. What's wrong where's, with where's werewolves? The problem? Yeah. Are small on. towns also banned from dancing? <laughs> but it's kind of fun reading through the co-criteria, and especially with like respect to the Watchmen, because reading through them, I think Watchmen literally broke every single rule in the Comics Code Authority, which is kind of fun. So CCA was like hugely influential in comics. It was only in the 80s, and we'll talk a little bit about more of that later, that they started publishers started to break away from the CCA. And it was not until like the 2010s until it was like completely abandoned altogether. That's way later than I would have expected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it was around for a really long time. Despite, you know, the dastardly deeds of Dr. Wortham, superheroes started to show a resurgence in the late 50s. So, like, really, um, in the late 50s, there were only three titles left that were being published. Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Every There were no other, like, superhero titles alone being published. They'd show up in really? other comics every once in a wow. while. But it was just down to them, really. Then... In 1956, DC introduced a new version of The Flash. It was kind of a modernized version of The Flash, what we kind of think of The Flash today. And they had some success with that. So they they started reintroducing their old Golden Age heroes and created the Justice League. So they they kind of Mm. revamped this old concept they had of Justice Society and teamed up all these heroes with the Justice League. And that was a big success too, like reintroducing like Green Lantern and Aquaman and Hawkman and all that stuff. So that did so well that there was a publisher across the street now named Marvel Comics. Oh, a little startup. Yeah, a little little startup called Marvel Comics. And they're like, hey, DC, they're having some success with these superheroes. Uh, and Martin Goodman, who was the head of superhero of Marvel at the time, directed his editor, a guy named Stan Lee, to, hey, you know what? We need to create our own superhero team. Like, they're having some success over there. And kind of legend goes that Stan was wanting to get out of comics because he was kind of tired of the comics he was writing and all that kind of stuff. But who knows how much of that's legend. Stan kind of was inflated his importance in some ways and, and told a lot of tall tales. But uh, So anyway, they were like, hey, we need our own superhero team. So Stan Lee, along with legendary artist Jack Kirby, created oh, – yeah. The Fantastic Four. So in 1961, the Fantastic Four come back. So basically, once the Flash and Justice League, and now we're like full blown in the Silver Age, that lead off basically the start of the Marvel Universe as we know it is with Fantastic Four. Mm. And then the next few years, there's this crazy explosion of superheroes created over at Marvel. You've got understand leave along with like artists and creators who contributed a huge amount to these. Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, John Romita, all kinds of uh, um, legendary artists. They introduced Spider-Man, X-Men, The Hulk, Avengers, Thor, all within like a few years. Pretty much every major Marvel character is created in the early to mid-60s. Wow. Huh. So another thing that Marvel introduced at this time is that kind of the superheroes in the real world. Before this, all the superheroes were pretty fantastic. 
in DC, they didn't even really live in real cities, you know, those metropolis and, and Gotham City. They lived in the real world and they also had like real flaws, real world problems, inner lives that didn't really exist before this. So Marvel kind of like matured the whole idea of comics a little bit. Huh. I was wondering when the flawed superhero came in, of course, like huge in Watchmen, was wondering if Watchmen was the first or not. So kind of cool to know where that actually began. Yeah, it's kind of origins with with uh, the Fantastic Four, but also like one of their main superheroes was literally a monster, the Hulk, right? With this anger yeah, issues yeah, right. and stuff like that. And then Spider-Man was this teenager with problems. So it's sort of revolutionary at the time to have this. And also creating like a universe where they kind of interact and events go across. That was something that really didn't quite happen before. Hmm. Also, kind of as a footnote, there's a now defunct publisher called Charlton Comics who introduced this line of superheroes called Captain Adam, Peacemaker, Nightshade, The Question. That's all kind of important to Watchmen later on. So the Silver Age doesn't really have like a, a set in the way the Golden Age does. It just kind of just the um, nature of comics start to change. Some people put it like the end around 1972 when there's a new creative team that takes over Green Lantern uh, and starts to make him more of a world-weary hero. There's also some people put the end of the Silver Age in uh, 1973 when Spider-Man's girlfriend Gwen Stacy dies. Mm. Basically, the Silver Age ends at the beginning of the 70s and the Bronze Age starts. And really, the Bronze Age is less about like this huge introduction of new IP, <laughs> as we call it nowadays. It's more about kind of like the uh, superheroes maturing a bit. There's more anti-heroes become popular, like the Punisher and Wolverine. And they, they start dealing more with like political issues and social issues. So basically, like superheroes are starting to mature because also the audience is starting to mature too. You've, you've got audiences that started back in the 60s who stayed fans and are mm. want the comics to start growing with them. So that, that starts to happen too. So um, we get to 1983 and an up and coming British artist or British writer named Alan Moore. <laughs> he's hired to write the saga of the swamp thing, which where he kind of basically reimagines and deconstructs the idea of swamp thing. It's really, it really holds up. It's if you like Watchmen, I really recommend reading Alan Moore's swamp thing run. Cause it's, yeah, it's cool. really, really interesting. The art's amazing. Hmm. Also as of note, it's the first mainstream comic to completely abandon the comics code authority. So they have, such things as Walking Dead in it and, and all those things that the, the CCA didn't like. Small towns with dancing. It's That's out right. of control, man. It's mm -hmm. banned in several states. You and they dance. were still able to like sell it? It didn't have the stamp of approval? Yeah. So another thing that was happening in the Bronze Age is that – well, so prior to the 70s, all comic books were sold in newsstands or drugstores or like on the spinner rack at Woolworths or something like that. So that that's where you, where you got all your comics. But – during the 70s, there were these specialty comic book stores that started to pop up. And the publishers started to sell directly to these stores, which is called the direct market. So in the 80s, Marvel and DC started to recognize the potential of this direct market and started creating comic books that cater directly to, hey, let's create comic books that are sold directly into these comic book shops. And we can directly hit those uber nerds that are way into this stuff. But we can also – we don't have to worry about the CCA and we can have more mature comics. Oh, so that allowed them to bypass that, just having direct sales. That was enough. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. 
Huh. Yeah. So like the last issue of Watchmen, for instance, was not like on a spinner rack in Kroger or something like that because so, it's fairly traumatic, right? Um, Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kroger wouldn't like Timmy opening up the first page of that comic book and screaming. Oh, my God. I was say the cover would probably be terrifying enough, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So that's how you started to have this like more mature and that's how the Watchmen can exist is that you have these comic book shops and these comic book shops were kind of like this hub of all things nerd too. I mean, you could go and buy your Dungeon and Dragons books. You could talk about Star Trek. It's it's sort of where the nascent nerd culture was born Mm -hmm. there in comic book stores. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm only one memory on this podcast, but just to like bring us all back since we are in history class, this was a time where like being a nerd was not cool. No. Like at some point in the 90s, like late 90s, being a nerd or a geek kind of somehow transitioned in pop culture that that was cool. Maybe Revenge of the Nerds started it, I was going like, to say, over the jocks. There's I don't know. literally a movie where nerds had to get revenge. Like that was right. your way of like getting some sort of justice was we had to have a movie. <laughs> right. But back then, like it was cool to hang at like the record shop, but it was not cool to hang at the comic book shop. This right. was no. pretty uh, on the outskirts of, of culture. Yeah, it wasn't a badge of honor back then for... For sure. Right, right. Yeah, and if you were like a teen or an adult reading a comic book, that was shameful, right? Like you would get shamed if you were, you know, reading an issue of Watchmen on the bus or something like that. You just, you wouldn't do it, right? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, good context. And it was hard to like find other people that were into the same things you were. And that, and you could go to the comic book shop and there were nerds that were into the same things you were. That's a great point for our like Gen Zers. Again, this is like pre-internet, yo. So if you're like, I'm really into Captain America, whatever your thing was, it was wicked hard to find other people. Because like, again, this is a nascent uh, outskirt pop culture thing. Like even at school, if you try and chat up people, if you're into Captain America, like it's wedgie and stuff in a locker time, man. Yeah. Like it, it was tricky. It was hard to find your people. Yeah. Yeah. And so shout out to my childhood comic book shop, Dark Star Comics in Yellow Springs, uh, which I- Oh, great name. Yeah, it's still there, still kicking, still sell comic books. And it's like a used bookstore and comic book shop. And they've got a a black cat that lives in the comic book shop and all that kind of stuff. Exactly everything you want. Amazing. (laughs) That's great. That's great. (laughs) So basically, the Bronze Age ends in 1986 with a publishing of two books. The first was uh, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. It's a dark story of a grizzled Batman coming out of retirement. You guys so talked bad. about it on, on the 1989 Batman episode. Mm-hmm. And then the second book is a little book called Watchmen yeah. by Alan Moore. So so Watchmen along with Dark Knight Returns are such a big impact on comics yeah. that basically it's the end of an age in comics and ushers in a whole new age. Wow. And that, and then modern age is kind of basically a reaction uh, to Watchmen after that point. And we can kind of talk about that and the impacts of, of Watchmen here a little bit later. Kind of the reason why I wanted to do this deep dive is, is that Watchmen itself, really to kind of appreciate the book, when you understand the comic book history, you can see that it's in conversation with that history. So the first generation of heroes, like the original Night Owl and Silk Spectre and like Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis, they're the golden age of superheroes. And they're yeah, right. clearly an homage to that time. Their costumes look like that time. It's exactly the same time. They even mentioned the publication of Superman and, and how that was an inspiration and all that stuff. And there's kind of this clear distinction of good and evil, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a, a simplistic drawing of that era 
think World War II and all that kind of stuff, like, you know, there were clear good guys and bad guys. And, mm-hmm. yeah, right. you know, that was, I think, very indicative of, of that time in culture as well as in comics. And there's like a dark undercurrent and, and some criticism and all that kind of diving in later in Watchmen. But yeah, there's very much that. So then the next, the second generation where you have Night Owl 2 and Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan and that like failed attempt to create the crime busters. That's the silver age because that's in the sixties. And again, they're, they're a little more mature, a little more, uh, have more complication, but they're still more simplistic. They reflect that time. Then the Bronze Age is sort of like the Vietnam era of Watchmen, where you've got like Dr. Manhattan and comedian in Vietnam, and then the basically disillusionment with superheroes with the Keen Act and and them being outlawed and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's not even just the ages, even like the comic within a comic, the pirate story is is an homage to those pre-code horror comics. So there's a bit of that too. The like author in the book of that's a real guy, yeah, or the artist. They 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 name check a, a real artist. Um, in the in wait, the, the dude, the dude who made the pirate comic who's within the book. It's also a real artist. Yeah, I'll have to look up his name, but yeah, his his there's an an artist that they they thought well, if this were to exist in the real world, this is the artist that you would want to get to draw it. Oh, and I think he drew like one of the the panels in the supplemental material at the end of one of the, one of the books. Oh, that's cool. Oh, okay. That's neat. There's like an even kind of a throwaway point somewhere in Watchmen where they mention something around the hear, hearings and Dr. Wortham and all that. And But basically they say that the government steps in and says, well, there are real superheroes that the government funds. We're not going to put any regulation on comics and there's no comics code authority. So there's even kind of conversation with that in Watchmen. Very much like Alan Moore wanted to talk a lot about history when they created Watchmen and have a conversation with it, so to speak. Well, and also the fact that like pirate comics are popular because you don't have superhero comics in this alternate history because they're real. So you don't need to have the fantasy of them. So it's further deepening of that, like idea of a conversation and how does that change the trajectory, even of artwork, let alone, you know, real life political landscape type stuff. Yeah. Cause it's not just an alternate world history, but it's an alternate comic history that Alan Moore imagines too, which is cool. That's awesome. That's pretty much where we end with the history lesson on comic books. That was a great crash course. Thank you for that. That has actually filled in a lot of mental gaps that I had. So very much appreciated. I'm sure we might tap back into it. I do want to talk just a little of the principal folks who bring this together. We've mentioned their names. So just I I don't want to dive into all of their histories in depth because – Again, we could do an entire season, let alone podcast, just about Watchmen, to be honest with you. Seriously, I forgot to check if there's a Watchmen (laughs) podcast. If there's a Quantum Leap podcast, there's got to be a dedicated Watchmen. I guarantee. There's so much content. There's so much. You could almost do a whole podcast just on Alan Moore, because Alan Moore is such an interesting character. Yeah. Yeah. So again, very cursory, but just so we know a little bit about it, the writer Alan Moore, Corey, as you mentioned, coming into this work... He had been doing a lot as a freelance writer. He had been working on comic strips. He had been illustrating his own strips. He was submitting to magazines, writing one-off stories for publication. He's really like hustling. He's trying to make a name for himself, and he does, and he eventually gets the attention of DC Comics. 
And Watchmen is really where he has cemented his reputation. So coming into Watchmen, he is a known quantity out there. He is a known uh, creator, but really doesn't, you know, Alan Moore doesn't become Alan Moore technically, I think, until really Watchmen hits the stage and, and just kind of explodes. Yeah, he gains some notoriety from the Swamp Thing because it's really well received right. in 83. So that I think that kind of gives him the clout to yes. do the Watchmen, but he's not, he doesn't become like this legendary figure until Watchmen. Right. You know, like a good senior student, I'm finishing my homework in class before I turn it in by the bell. But I do want to say, I confirmed there are at least a baker's dozen podcasts dedicated to the Watchmen property. Really? But only two dedicated to Alan Moore. That's way more than I expected. I was like, maybe there's one out there. So the fact that there's more than one of each is actually very impressive. Not saying that I dislike Watchmen, but there's 12 too many podcasts just about the Watchmen. <laughs> I think we only need one good one. I'm just going to throw it out there. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm just saying. Just one one good one's all you need. Some people <laughs> might say there don't need to be 50 podcasts about the 80s and, you know, right. a couple of middle-aged white dudes talking about it. So throw that out there, too. So <laughs> The other 49 should leave and let us, you know, yeah. continue thriving. Yeah, That'd just be need great. one. Just need 80s high. Just need one. Let's talk about Dave Gibbons a little bit. He is a comics artist and coming into Watchmen, he's illustrated many projects for IPC Comics. He did some illustrations for Doctor Who and uh, his works also earned the attention of DC Comics. And he actually does a lot of work on backup features. Corey, you might know this term within comic books, but backup features for Green Lantern and The Flash most notably. So he's doing a lot of that stuff. I guess it's more like ancillary materials. He's not necessarily illustrating for like the main content that you'd find in a Green Lantern comic. So before, like, I think it was the eighties and before not all comics were one story. Usually there'd be like a main story, like a Superman comic even would just have maybe oh, that's right. 15 pages of a Superman comic. And then at the end, there'd be five pages of a Green Lantern story or right. something oh, else. Oh, yeah. That would be the backup story. And that, that was pretty common up until through the 80s and maybe even early 90s. Okay, so he's illustrating for actual Green Lantern. It's just not a Green Lantern comic book. Green mm-hmm. Lantern is being featured in, say, a Superman comic yeah. book. Okay, yeah. that makes way more sense. And so much like uh, Moore, Gibbons really earns his notoriety as a, an artist and illustrator and creator from Watchmen. Then we have John Higgins. He's the colorist who is brought in. This is great. He started as a medical illustrator. Hmm. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> that serves him well throughout Watchmen. I mean, listen, the man knows how to draw a nervous system. So let's just be <laughs> super, t- or color, I should say. Color and blood. <laughs> nervous system. Yeah, and, right, and blood, yeah. So uh, Higgins' first comic book art is actually published in Brainstorm Comics in 1975. He also drew the cover for 2000 AD, issue number 43 in 1997. And that earned him more work on future 2000 AD artwork. And he even did a collaboration with Alan Moore and was doing covers for Marvel UK. So that's kind of some of his background coming into Watchmen. And so those are the three often credited as the co-creators. There's another name that kept coming up. So I just wanted to give a shout out because I learned about this person and I was like, oh, wow, this is a very influential person within the industry. And that is Lynn Wynn, it's W-E-I-N. And he's an American comic book writer and editor. He's credited as co-creating DC Comics Swamp Thing, Marvel Comics Wolverine, 
and for helping revive the Marvel superhero team X-Men, including the co-creation of Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus. That's pretty darn influential. That's a yeah. heck of a resume yeah, right that's there. Holy crap. Impressive. He might be one of those people more behind the scenes. Corey, you said his name was not familiar to you. You hadn't really heard that name. Yeah, I didn't know that one. I don't know, maybe he was more on the editing kind of back-end creative side. Um, but additionally, he was the editor for Moore and Gibbons on Watchmen. And I kept reading that like, oh, this they earned the attention of DC Comics. It was Lynn Wynn who got their attention. He was the editor at that time. So he clearly mm-hmm. saw the talent and brought these folks together. And, and thus we have the trio behind Watchmen. Again, very high level, but those are some of the principles involved. I'm sure we'll come back and talk more about them and their influence on this work. Uh, A little bit about how Watchmen started. So this is some of the origin story of the work itself. So what I found is that Watchmen originated from a story proposal that Moore had submitted to DC, and he wanted to feature superhero characters from that acquired company, Charlton Comics, that you mentioned, Corey. Mm. Mm-hmm. His proposal, though, would have left a lot of these characters effectively unusable for future stories. And the editor at that time, Dick Giordano, had convinced Moore, hey, maybe you should use original characters for this. So Moore is initially apprehensive about that. And I guess he's like, will the reader have an emotional resonance or recognition if they're not familiar with the characters? But Ooh. then he realized, you know what? There's a lot of archetypes and types of superheroes. So if I can utilize those, that will sort of telegraph well. And the reader is going to understand who these characters are and kind of what they're about. And he can tell his story effectively. Yeah, and he kind of remaps those Charlton characters onto the Watchmen characters. That's right. So the, the, his original proposed story title was called Who Killed the Peacemaker? So if you've heard of the Peacemaker show that just came out recently with John Cena. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hilarious, by the way. Really good. Yeah, it is very good. It's very it's, – uh, James Gunn created it and yeah. wrote it. It's, it's really funny. But so the Peacemaker, he remapped as the comedian. And the question, if you've ever seen the question, he's like this guy with a blank face and he wears a fedora mm. and now that he becomes Rorschach. So, so basically he takes all the characters and like you said, they're archetypes and he just reskins them and changes them around a bit and turns them into what we know in Watchmen. And then who played the situation? Oh, wait, that's from Jersey Shore. <laughs> that's, Never a mind. that's a different one. That's a different Okay. <laughs> Slightly different. <laughs> That, that was in the sequel, like, situation uh, okay. versus right. Snooky, yeah. and Snooky <laughs> was behind everything all along. Oh, man. Um, a little bit about the title, Watchmen. Apparently, it is a reference to a line from a Roman poet, Juvenal, and Juvenal's work, Satires. Uh, any Latinophiles in the, the group who want to uh, take a stab at this? Ben, didn't you take Latin? I didn't write it down in my notes, but I, that, that's, that was my language in high school. It took three Hold years on. of Latin. I'm going to put this in the – got to put your Latin to use. Oh, well, I mean, no one's heard Pop of spoken quiz. in millennia. I'll, I'll give it my – besides the Pope, I'll give my shot. You will be graded on this. Quis custodiet ipsos custodes. All right. Look at that. Boom. Senior year. I'm done. Mic drop. I'm driving out. B minus was what I'm B saying. B minus. <laughs> <laughs> it's passing. The- well, I'll make it. <laughs> All right, so that roughly translates to who watches The Watchmen. Oh, nice. That was one. That's awesome. That's a good factoid. Indeed. And Alan Moore had said that, you know, he liked this because it related to this idea of policing the people in positions of power. 
So thematically, that was something that really, again, resonates for him. And Moore had said, you know, in creating this story, he really wanted to reflect contemporary anxieties. He wanted to deconstruct and satirize the concept of superheroes. And he was interested in making political commentary. And he said, you know, the work I'm doing is not anti-American. He said, but it is very much a message of anti-Reaganism. Of course, Reagan being a a very central figure in a a fair number of our discussions, you know, here on 80s High. So that's some of the influence going into how they're going to put this interwoven story together. I do want to talk a little bit about some of the composition of the book here in history before we wrap up. But is there anything else that's noteworthy? Yeah, I had one other that I read a little bit uh, on Dave Gibbons and him working with Alan Moore. And basically, he had heard that Alan Moore was cooking up this new miniseries and kind of reached out. They had worked together before. And one thing that he said that was really interesting is that Alan Moore was very descriptive in his script that he wrote. Yes for Watchmen. Like he, he basically laid out panels. It was, it was very detailed. The first issue of Watchmen was 101 pages, single spaced the script. Oh my God. Which is wild, which is also a lot different than because other comic book scripts, sometimes they're very loose, right? They'll be very, they won't have a lot of detailed instructions for the artist, but apparently Watchmen was very detailed. And Dave Gibbons apparently followed the script pretty closely. He didn't, he didn't deviate a lot from what Alan Moore gave him, even though Alan Moore was very collaborative with him and all that kind of stuff. But I thought that was wild, 101 pages. That is crazy. Wait, is it for the first issue or 101 pages for the entire thing? The first issue was Just 101 the first issue, pages. Man. Which, you know, again, if you're not a, a comic book reader, Corey, how many pages is a typical comic book? 25 to 30, okay. somewhere right around there. So some, something like, of, of you know, and some of that's just art. You know, it's not like- Exactly, yeah. Not, all, not words, but yeah, it's dense. You know, I, I thought there was a lot of text in this graphic novel. If only the director's cut had been released. My goodness. Talking about, again, the composition of the book, Moore and Gibbons, they really designed Watchmen to showcase the unique qualities of- comics medium and to highlight its strengths. And you'll hear over and over again, Moore say he wanted to do what you could not achieve in any other medium. That was his goal. So when <laughs> when we talk about the many attempts to bring this to any kind of screen, Moore is very categorically against it. What, what did you call him? A lovable cantankerous sort? What did you say, Corey? He's a cranky, kooky genius. Is, okay. Is, <laughs> describes <laughs> Alan Moore really well. <laughs> That's very fair. And if you've never seen a picture of him, just go do a little search and you'll look at him and be like, "Uh uh-huh. Yes, (laughs) indeed. Yeah, I'll I'll dive in a little bit more and Alan Moore in chemistry because he's an interesting character. Fantastic. But also that kind of him wanting to kind of stretch what was possible in the genre and showcase what is only possible in comics is part of the reason why it's so legendary. It's kind of like the Citizen Kane of comic books where they were- thinking about comics in a way that nobody really had thought about before and stretched in different ways. Yeah, very much like Orson Welles. Like, how do I take this medium of film? You're absolutely right, Corey, and then play with it. How do I play with time and perspective and all that kind of stuff? So yeah, 100%. Moore had said also that Watchmen was designed to be read four or five times, with some links and allusions only becoming apparent to the reader after several readings. I will just oh my say, gosh. only read it once. Uh, we'll talk more about that. But I definitely get it. 
as I was doing more research, it was brought to my attention how many little details are packed into some of those panels, uh, multiple panels, multiple pages, multiple issues, all that kind of stuff. So it's not surprising that that was his goal because there's there's a lot here. What a, what a born marketer too. Hey, the only way you'll enjoy my product, use it five times. And each, each use will take you hmm, 24 to 30 hours of reading. Like, yeah, but you need it really five times to get it. Oh, goodness. Genius. I have read it about four or five, six times. And you, it is pretty wild. Every time you read it, you do kind of pick up something different. Like even this oh, one. Oh, nice. I was still picking up, especially as kind of looking at it from a perspective that I'm going to be talking about it on a podcast. Sure. I know I was noticing details that I hadn't noticed before. Again, revolutionary in comics because comic books up until this time were a disposable medium, kind of like television yeah. used to be. It was like you read the comic and then you threw it away, right? Almost or you gave it literally. to a friend and they gave it to a friend, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the collector's market had kind of started in the 80s by this time, but there weren't as many of like, yeah, you're supposed to re- read this comic book and reread and reread and, and find multiple layers and all that stuff. Yeah. Higgins introduces a radical color palette. He said he went with a secondary color palette, which to people who understand illustration and color probably makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I don't know precisely what that means, but, you know, really going against expectation on some of the coloring in the panels. And that is something, again, not as a expert or even enthusiast in that. I noticed the, the, the coloring was, I would say, atypical of what you would expect, or at least with my experience of reading comic books. Yeah, it's totally different. It's hard to put a finger on it, but it is very different. And it's also, as much as I love Watchmen, it's not aesthetically, the color palette's not my favorite. Sure. I think it's somewhat intentional, somewhat unsettling and yeah. throws you off a bit. But yeah, it's, it is unusual. You know, because there is so much in here, you always have to ask the question like, well, what was planned and what was happenstance? And Moore did say that there are a lot of happy coincidences, accidents, or synchronicities, as he called them, some little magical things that came up that really wove a lot of the narratives together. And I'm sure we might talk about some of those in chemistry. One great example, the smiley face, which is a very key representation You know, at one point, Dr. Manhattan goes to Mars and he was looking at a book about Mars and there's the Galley, Gal Crater, I don't know exactly how that's pronounced, on Mars that actually looks like a smiley face. That was unintentional, but one of those happy coincidences where thematically you're just like, oh, what came first? Well, the way Moore tells it, that was not planned. It just came to be. Another cool one is they talk about the lock company, <laughs> the guy that keeps coming to repair all the busted door locks when people oh, yeah. are kicking yeah, yeah. doors in. The Rorschach keeps breaking his lock. Yeah. He yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably gets a little like kickback from the Gordian Knot Lock Company, which apparently the Gordian Knot is, I had to look this up, I didn't know. It's a reference to an ancient Greek legend uh, related to Alexander the Great, which we learn later. He was a big inspiration for one of the characters, Ozymandias. Oh, cool. You know, we could talk a whole lot more, but I I think we could transition over to chemistry class, unless there's anything else that we feel is key to put here in history. I've got one good quote from Dave Gibbons that that was kind of fun, too. Basically, he said, as it progressed, as they were writing Watchmen, Watchmen became much more about the telling than the tale itself. So mm-hmm. they, they fell into the, the process of telling it rather than worrying so much about the plot, um, which I find really interesting. And you could tell there's a lot of care put into all the little details throughout. 
Absolutely. Very well said, Mr. Gibbons. Well, listen, guys, much like Rorschach, why don't we casually waltz into Dr. Manhattan's secret military research lab so we can talk chemistry, exploring our experiences, both past and present, with this graphic novel. What do you say? Awesome. I'm going to grab a sugar cube to munch on as I (laughs) walk in there. That sounds perfect. And Chris, don't go in that closet. We're about to start the experiment. No, no. I look forward to recomposing myself over the next week or so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your your intrinsic field was subtracted, and now you're slowly piecing yourself together. You know, like you do. That's what happens when you get disassembled. It's no big whoop. Okay, that was great history, but I'm really curious to dive more into our experiences. And so, much like we do with chemistry, let's first talk about our initial introduction. Did any of you have a proper 80s experience with Watchmen. No. And thankfully, I did not. Because I was <laughs> when Watchmen came out, I was seven years old. Listen, you could it could have been 89. You would have been a ripe age of 10. Perfectly, you know, suited mm-hmm. for this story. But no. And honestly, I probably, even if I did try to attempt it, I probably would have been bored by it. Because it is dense. Yes. Well, Corey, I think you're going to have the earliest experience. So tell us, when did you first experience Watchmen? So I read Watchmen, I'm trying to remember, it was probably when I was in my 20s, like okay. college, some, somewhere around there, when I was sort of like, I'd taken a break from comics and I was kind of coming back to comics after a while. And I was like, hey, I had never read Watchmen. I should dive in and read this thing. And honestly, the first reading it was a little bit hard to get into. It's, it is dense. It's different than what I expected, especially back then. I was much more into superheroes with superpowers. And like you said, there is one superhero truly in the book, Dr. Manhattan. Right. It just was different than what I expected it to be. And I didn't like the pirate story. I was like, why am I, they keep going back to this pirate story. Right. Although I was like enjoying it more as I went along. But then finally, when you get to the end and you get to the twist, and you, you understand what everything was building to. I, I kind of loved it. And then kind of over the years, I've read it, I, I, like I said, five, six, seven times, something like that. And I get more out of it every time. Okay. And Ben, you're going to have the next most recent experience with it. Tell us your story. So I am the son of Night Owl. It's time to come clean. I'm the modern Night Owl. So this Are you is Night Owl 3? Whoa. I'm recording from inside Archimedes right now. I'm just <laughs> tinkering a little bit in here. No, I came to Watchmen super late, decades late. And it wasn't until I saw the 2009 movie, which up to that point changed my understanding of what a superhero story could be. Much like Corey just talked about like how great, I know these are different movies, so everybody calm down. But in the new animated Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But for me, more like how Spider-Verse was years ago, where I was like, I didn't know a superhero movie could be so deep and awesome and fun and funny that right. like Spider-Verse was. Watchmen introduced me to this whole like blending of what's real and what's not. Like the story's kind of taking place in a real world. Like these are real people. These are real cities. But also that like totally flawed and fractured superhero. I kind of went over my head of like, I don't know. I, I get that like Hulk is fractured and broken because like it's all about his internal rage that maybe we all kind of experience when you stub your toe and you're like, I want to break everything. Like, I get that, but like the flawed action going on in Watchmen is like deep, like existential nihilistic crises. And I didn't know like a comic story could be like that. So having seen that movie and then learning 
which is like the whole point of why our podcast exists. Oh, this is based on an amazing graphic novel series. I went back and read like right after the movie came back out, uh, read Watchmen and was forever changed. That's why I always wear this Rorschach hood now because that's the only way I can exist in public. I, I, it's the only safe way. So you're Night Owl 3 and Rorschach 2? You're both? <laughs> Yeah, see, so it's complicated. Uh, okay, so we're at minute 312. All right, I'm going to get into it. So time is weird. He's both at the same time and yet neither ever. Yeah, well, sorry, it's pretty I'm, crazy. I'm viewing time from one edge rather than at the whole t- Sorry. Exactly. Right. I'm, I'm glad we're staying on theme. So, Christopher, I'm glad you finished watching Watchmen right before we clicked record. When, when did you get uh, exposed to all this? My exposure was less than a month ago. So Fantastic. I, <laughs> I truly never knew this was a property, probably until the movie came out. Yeah. I had heard of it, and all I knew it was about superheroes. That's pretty much all I knew. Like, it was a superhero story that people knew of, and that was kind of it. I had no – I really and truly knew nothing about this story. I didn't even know a character name. I didn't know a, like, minor plot point really came into this as fresh as can be. And so my first experience was, yeah, picking that up. Well, let me rewind a little bit because I told this in our last episode when we ended season three. I was visiting Corey a couple of years ago at some point. I was like, hey, uh, what would you like to you know, come and talk about on the podcast? And I remember you pulled off an extra copy of The Watchmen from your shelf and you were like, take this home. You should read this. I'd like to come talk about this. I was like, okay, and I grabbed it, and I don't even think I flipped through it. I brought it home, and it went on my shelf where it stayed. But I knew I wanted to do this topic with Corey, and I kind of manufactured this whole thing that we could kick this season off because I knew if we're going to read this thing, it's dense, there's a lot to it, we're going to need more than our typical two weeks where, you know, yeah. we reveal a topic and then, you know, if I said, Ben, read this, rewatch the movie and maybe pick up the series in two weeks, I would be dead. He would Rorschach me out of existence. So can't do that. <laughs> Rorschach. No, Archimedes, would, he would turn the flamethrower on me. That's what he would do. And Dr. Manhattan, point his hand. And That's right. <laughs> blood stain on the snow. Pink mist. Precisely. So, so yeah, that... I took it in, and I will say this much because I was a little pressed for time. I finished this by watching the motion comic. So I read about half of it. To make sure I got through it all, I went ahead and I found out there's a motion comic, which we're going to talk about, which is a pretty darn faithful adaptation of the story. And that's how I was able to finish it in time so we could talk about it. So yeah, that's it. And the best thing I can say, and we'll talk more about it, quite prescient. Up until <laughs> September 4th, 2023. That is today. I can't speak of uh, till tomorrow. I do not have powers of the future, but I'm going to tell you right now, very, very timely, prescient, timeless, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I was like, holy crap. Which like shakes me to my core. It's either prescient or like the stuff we complain and we're worried about today. Everyone's been complaining and worrying about for 40 years and like is both like comforting and like, oh, Okay, every generation's had these problems before us, but also horrifying of like, how have we not fixed this in like four generations? These things still going on. It definitely lends credence to that adage. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? You're just like, okay. hmm." And then just real quick to wrap that up, I did watch the movie as well. And we'll talk later in contemporary culture, but I did catch a couple of the episodes of the television series, 2019 series. So... That was my experience. 
We're going to have chemistry focus really on the graphic novel, but we'll pick up those two other properties in contemporary culture. Corey, you got something for us. Yeah, well, it, it is kind of interesting reading Watchmen, you know, like 40 years removed from the Cold War now or from the 80s. Right. There was this existential dread, right, of like nuclear war, but it, it kind of just underlines which, which I, what I think is the central theme of the book of – are we going to spoil Watchmen? We haven't really spoiled it yet. I don't know that you can talk about it and not spoil it. So I think, you know, we're going to do our best not to spoil the – television series the 2019 series because it's still relatively new yeah i think it's fair but you know to talk about the movie and the graphic novel how they're different and similar i think we kind of have to get into spoiler territory so fair warning okay yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna spoil the end of watchman so basically the end of watchman is the whole conspiracy is that adrian veidt ozzy mandius one of the heroes from the the silver age so to speak of watchman he decides to come up with this crazy plot to end the Cold War, essentially, yeah. between the United States and the Soviet Union. So basically, he, he wants to drop a, you know, as you do, a genetically engineered psychic octopus onto New York City and kill half the population of New York City. Derivative, but we'll overlook that. <laughs> but basically, he, he's doing it, so to speak, from with good intentions because, you know, he's the smartest man on earth. And he has predicted that the world is going to end sometime in like the 1990s or 2000s will end in a nuclear exchange. So he needs to do something to get us off of that course, right? So basically, he's the ultimate, from his point of view, the ends justify the means, right? Like any means necessary to avert the end of the world. I mean, this is not a, a new concept, right? Sacrifice millions to save billions. Yeah. Is sort of the, the, the idea that he unilaterally decides is his burden to both take up and shoulder as well as to put upon the world. So it's kind of almost sort of comforting reading Watchmen now when you're, we're not as, you know, under the specter of nuclear war the way that we were in the 80s. That it, it, he was very clearly wrong, right? Like that you, the ends don't justify the means. Mm. There's this quote that that I've heard told several times of like that the ends don't justify the means because in the end there are no ends. There are, are only means. So that's mm. kind of kind Ooh. of the lesson of this book, right? That's interesting. Even at the end of Watchmen, Doctor Manhattan sort of says something to that effect too of when he leaves to go off to leave the galaxy or something like that. He says to Adrian Veidt, there, you know, nothing ends. So yeah, it, it, it is almost sort of a comfort. As dark as this book is and, and depressing, it's clear that he was wrong. And the, the central message of the book, I think, is ultimately right. I love that you dove right to the end. You're just like, yeah. listen, everybody. Yeah, let's just get, get right into in. it. <laughs> let's dive right into it. Well, so see, like, Corey, you're right. Like, how more rights Veet in the end, like any really good villain... You're almost kind of sold on the solution. By the end of Veet's speeches, you're like, well, he's kind of got a point. And like, you know, Dan Dryberg is turned over to it. Laurie agrees with it. Rorschach, of course, uh, <clears throat> doesn't agree and uh, has has no future in uh, disagreeing anymore. But like, uh, you know, he, he, he does a great villain speech. As crazy as the plan is, like his logic isn't crazy, right? It's like a, it's right. like yeah. a you can see that it's justified. It's one of those cases, too, where 
We've seen this all the time. The villain gives away the thing so that the good guys have time to stop him. And, you know, at some point he's like, what do you mean? I've already enacted the plan. Do you think I'm going to give everything away? So, again, he's, right. he's playing with the trope. Moore is playing with that trope of, this is what I'm going to do. I've done it all along. And they're like, not so fast, bad guy. You know, and then they <laughs> intervene. Dr. Manhattan comes down and saves the day. Well, that doesn't happen. Quite the opposite. So I, I love the fact that you get that villain speech, but also your expectation is, oh, thank heavens. Now the good guys have the answer to get the solution to stop this awful plan. But that's not what happens. And then the good guys, you know, our heroes kind of have to make a devil's bargain to be like, we have to sort of live with this and keep this secret. Like you don't get a huge fight between the good guys and the bad guys at the end. It's more a conversation. Mm -hmm. And Adrian kicks the bejesus out of all three of them there, except for Dr. Manhattan, who eventually gets free. But like, he is far superior <laughs> to Laurie Rorschach and Night Owl in combat. And did they ever quite explain that? Because he's not a honest-to-goodness superhero. I know he's supposed to be really smart, but how is he able to basically fend them all off? It's why Tom Cruise looks beautiful at 82, whatever it is. Is that what it is? You know, Veet's rich. He can afford 24-7 personal trainers, people to make his little veggie shakes, you know, uh, inspiring commentary live from a yogi every morning. He, he, he can spend the dough to get healthy. Yeah, he's basically peak human, right? He's the best at literally everything. He's smartest and fastest and all that kind of stuff. Hmm, okay. I felt like it was never quite explained why he was so much better than everyone else, other than just the fact that he had stayed in, I guess, peak shape and continued yeah. to test himself and didn't let himself go or whatever, I suppose. Yeah, that's okay. kind of- I was kind of yeah. curious. What else do we think was noteworthy, interesting, cool, loved? Let's talk about some of the stuff that blew our minds- my favorite part of the book we could talk about too is since I, I jumped to the end, now I can kind of go back to the middle. Right. My yeah, favorite, very fitting, very fitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because again, I'm I'm experiencing the book all at once, <laughs> right? Sorry, right. at every moment. There's no such my, thing my, as a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, my favorite part of the book is the Doctor Manhattan's book. Oh, I actually read this um, when Alan Moore was laying out Watchmen. He's like, oh my gosh, I only have plot for six comics. But I signed for 12. So right. he, basically, the idea he came up with is he'll intersperse the plot with the backstories of all the characters. Right. So in the middle is Dr. Manhattan's backstory and his origin story. And, and more so, what I found really interesting is how he experiences reality, right? He doesn't yes. experience time in a linear way. For him, time is happening all at once. So he can see the future but he can't affect the future, but he can. he's experiencing everything all at once. Right. I think he, he says something along the lines of, you're experiencing time on one edge where I'm experiencing it in like, you know, full on or whatever. You're speaking of the actual watch man in the book. This mm -hmm. guy obsessed with watches in time, also the man. No, like his, his creation sequence, I'm a sucker for a good backstory, origin story. That all is just awesome like how yeah. he comes to be and how he uh like one of my favorite quotes from and they do this a bunch in it but one of the quotes it's november 10th now there's a circulatory system walking through the kitchen like as he reforms and in the end when even v tries to blow him up and he's like reassembling myself is one of the first tricks i learned adrian like he's awesome i love i love that i love um his treatment how they do him in the movie he just looks great like the vfx for dr manhattan look awesome visually 
The only thing I'll say about the origin, and then Chris, I want to know what you think about it, is this is one of the few parts where I actually liked the movie version more than the comic. I felt like it was hard to follow reading it because it jumps back and forth so quickly in time and settings and what's happening and who's in each setting. Where like the movie just was a lot easier of the visual storytelling of like. I'm clearly at a party in 1940. Now I'm clearly on Mars. Now I'm clearly reassembling a watch with my dad in his workshop. Like it was hover, but his origin story is just, and how they like scripted it is so cool. You definitely speak to something that was confusing for me. And I imagine most people when you read it first is you don't, it's really hard to follow what time frame you're in because there's not a clear yeah. shift between them. And you know, they're illustrated characters. It's not like a human face that you can kind of attach recognition to, which is still challenging with so many characters to begin with. But like, you'll see these characters, they're never properly introduced. So you see a child in the hallway and there's a man and a woman in a room down the hall struggling or arguing. You don't know who they are. You don't know who the child is because the child is like shadowed in black with the light coming out of the room. And so you're just sitting there like, what on earth is going on? And Corey, you mentioned the Black Freighter story. And all of a sudden you're like, why am I reading about a pirate ship and a captain? And like, what is going on here? And then you get in between each chapter, you get a book to read. You read a book in (laughs) in the middle of a book and you're like, what? Hollis Mason's journal. And it's just like, I don't want to read five single-spaced pages of text. I want to learn more of this graphic novel. So it is, it's a lot to follow at first. You're 100% correct. And that's kind of, I think, probably what I was, when I first read it for the first time, I was a little off. It's, it's off-putting because it, is, it hard is hard to follow. Yeah. It really is. And so the movie, I think you're right, does shorthand a lot of that uh, because, you know, just what you can do with visual storytelling and with, you know, live action. But so, yeah, let's talk about that more in contemporary culture. But I agree. My favorite section of this was the issue about Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. John Osterman, that physicist and his origin story and how his dad was a watchmaker and he was learning to be a watchmaker and like the just the way that narrative is told is so stunning and it feels like you are watching like a a Christopher Nolan movie where Nolan is able to like paint this story and all of a sudden you see these threads come together and you're like what did I just see genius yeah what did I just witness like it had that kind of an effect on me that's immediately what came to my mind and there's a great sequence later where Lori she goes to Mars with John and they're having this conversation. She's trying to convince him to come back. And he's like, this will end with you crying. And she's like, no, it won't. And like, they had this whole conversation and you're like, well, of course she's going to outsmart him and she's not going to cry. And she gets to that point and she's like, see, I'm leaving and I'm not crying yet. And then it leads into this whole other conversation where she does end up in tears, not for the reason you think. And I can't remember exactly what it is is off the top of my head, but it was just this what this thing where you're like, aha, we're going to outsmart the future and we know it and she's going to do it and she's going to find a way and like I'm on board and she's on board and then it happens exactly as Manhattan says and you're like, holy crap, this Which, is like, wild. Can we talk about how riotously angering that would be? Like Lori and John <laughs> are like a, yeah. are, are a romantic relationship that's falling out. Can you imagine – if your Sigo knew the outcome of every fight you were going to have or topic beforehand, like that would drive you freaking nuts. What a, what Absolutely. a dirty line. You're going to be crying by the end of this. <gasps> no, 
John. F you. That'd be so infuriating. There's there's one line too where he's like, he's like, yeah, in five minutes you're gonna tell me that you've been sleeping with Dan Dryberg, right? And, right, and I'm gonna right. be. And then five minutes later, she says it, and then he's and he's surprised. And he's like, "You, you knew," and she's like so frustrated. Yeah, it just I can't imagine how infuriating that would be. Right, Chris, you brought up another thread that I need help on. Okay, I read this twice. I have not gotten to the six that's recommended to finally understand what's happening. <laughs> but like, what is the Black Freighter all about? Like, Moore does not write anything that's not symbolic. Everything in this book means something much deeper. And like the first time you read it, you're like, oh, neat, a sailing story, fun. (laughs) Just each time you come back, you're like, this is horrific. What is happening? And after my second read, I still don't know why this is part of the story. What is the Black Freighter there? So reading it this time, I did pick up a little bit more, but there is one very clear thing and I'll I'll get to in a minute. But a lot of times the pirate story is like subtext or commenting on what's going on at the same time in the book. So if you'll read like, the caption from the pirate story is sort of like loosely commenting on yeah. what's actually going on in the story. So there's that. Okay. So the pirate story is this, it's called the tales of the black freighter. And actually the Joe Orlando is the real artist that they kind of, they say in the book drew it. And he's actually a real artist in the real world and everything. So the pirate story is actually the story of Adrian Veidt. So what happens with the pirate is, you know, he gets stranded He thinks that this evil pirate ship of demon ghost pirates or whatever are going to go to his hometown and attack his hometown and kill his family and everybody he loves. So he kind of descends into madness trying to get back to his home to stop these pirates. And he does whatever it takes. He literally, on the backs of his dead friends that he digs up and builds a raft – and gets back to the mainland and goes crazy. And he realizes that the pirates have already been there. So he's going to do whatever it takes to stop these pirates. And he kills somebody when he gets back there. And then the, at the very end, he realizes that he has become the monster that he was trying to stop. Which is, you know, an allegory for Adrian Veidt, right? Adrian yeah. Veidt thought that he was going to end the Cold War and he saw all these horrors that were going to happen, imagined or real. So he steps on the backs of all his dead friends and kills all his friends to bring that about. So it's it's an allegory for Vite. And a lot of the, I mean, Rorschach a little bit too. Rorschach kind of falls in the, you know, ends justifies the means as well. But it's mainly about Ozymandias. What? Like this, okay, like a comedian's melon hitting the pavement. My (laughs) brain was just exploded. I literally, obviously, now that you say it, it feels so freaking obvious in the book. But that, ah, thank you. I literally didn't know. That's great. I feel so much better and stupider for not having seen that the 19th time. It's great. Also, it makes it hard, too, because it's like stretched out across like six different books. It's like not, It's it pops up every once. It's just the dude there on the sidewalk reading it, essentially. But yeah, that's it. It's it's allegory again for the central theme that the ends don't justify the means kind of thing. Cool. Okay. Thanks. I can sleep tonight. I mean, it'll be mixed with the nightmares of what actually happens in the Black Freighter. But at some point. So I could kind of talk about some of the other. There's like recurring motifs. That's also a really big thing. There's like the stained happy face. And there's yeah. and and you'll find like lots of times of of course they'll they'll reoccur the stained happy face or the there's even you know the happy face on Mars and there's like a little comet or the 
piece of it on there. But there's also a lot of like circles with stains on them that you'll find throughout the book. There's also kind of similar to there's watches and clocks, again, circles, and there's a lot of that stuff. So there's a recurring motifs around there. There's also kind of a recurring motif of symmetry in the book as well. First of all, with like Dr. Manhattan and how he can kind of see the future and the past all at once. But Rorschach's mask is symmetrical and Rorschach ink blots are symmetrical. There's also a lot of panels that mirror other panels. You'll find there's one kind of shot at the end that I noticed this time where like it's at the very end after Laurie and Dan have found the plan and they're kind of like comforting each other in the pool and they have the shadow of themselves like reflected up on the wall and the next panel is Rorschach, and his face looks very much like their shadow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that shadow is also symbolic of the Hiroshima shadow and th- right. that somebody did graffiti on. Is that what that's about? You keep seeing the two silhouettes of people embracing all over the place. Is that supposed to be the Hiroshima shadow? Yeah, that's kind of like a callback to the, oh. the Hiroshima shadow, too. But you also see that kind of recurring throughout, too. Right, so there's yeah. recurring motifs of nuclear dread <laughs> throughout the book, too, stuff like that. I mean, one of the recurring motifs I thought was very uh, pertinent for 80s high was nostalgia. So Veet's got this cologne called Nostalgia that's sort of like way in the background. And I was like, why is this keeping in it? And then, Chris, I know it was your favorite part of the book, Hollis Mason's journal pages, you know, the old night owl. There's a write-up in one of those that's like the ad man's pitch for Nostalgia Cologne to Veet. And it goes, quote, it seems to me that the success of the campaign is directly linked to the state of global uncertainty that has endured for the past 40 years or more. In an era of stress and anxiety, when the present seems unstable and the future unlikely, the natural response is to retreat and withdraw from reality, taking recourse either in fantasies of the future or in modified visions of a half-imagined past. And I was like, oh, that's like one of the cornerstones of starting 80s high podcast. (laughs) Stuff was crazy. Let's give everybody a highway back to the 80s. Where things, at least the parts we want to remember, are not so crazy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I kind of remember what I wanted to talk about, but I think it also fits here with like motifs or themes is we talked about Manhattan and his powers, but we also realized that he's lost his humanity in all of this too. Like he's not a relatable character. He's not somebody who understands humans. He doesn't get human emotion and, and suffering and experience anymore, even though he used to be. By gaining all of this power, he has actually lost his connection. And in some ways, Manhattan is a critique of Superman and that Superman manages to keep this humanity about him, this you know human identity, and he can understand his relationship with Lois. And it's like Moore's kind of intention behind that is like, you that doesn't exist. That is, a again, a very golden age level of thinking where you have this purity and Somebody with that level of power and being able to understand like the quantum level basically is not a relatable person. And I think they do a great job of making him this cold and separate figure, not even just so much like in the way he talks to people or, you know, is sort of like tone deaf with his discussions with Lori that always, you know, are like you guys said, maddening if you were in a relationship with this person yeah. or even a freaking friend with them. But, you know, his word bubbles are like blue and they've got a little white glow to them. He has a white glow. Like he's almost literally separate from the rest of the comic book, like the way he's drawn. And I just Mm -hmm. think that like, those are little details that, you know, I didn't see that that was a thing that Gibbons or, you know, more intentionally outlined, I guess quite literally or figuratively, Mm. but like, 
I thought those were kind of details that like were probably not happy accidents that I think were intentional to show some of that separation. And again, I think, you know, what's really interesting is when we talk about the golden era and like how everything was more black and white, good and evil, that was still just the facade. It wasn't true, but that was the telling of that time frame. And that becomes very clear in this narrative where you find out that the comedian tried to sexually assault Silk Spectre, like that character. And there was terrible stuff that was happening between these characters. But again, they're drawn in this way that is much more simplistic, very evocative of that era where everyone's like, it was a simpler time and things were great. No, they weren't. They just seemed that mm-hmm. way. That was sort of the allure, the dream of that era. But to tell yourself there was no complexity and shades and shadow is a huge disservice to reality. It's, it's you know, in some ways it's nostalgic look back. What did you say? The um, half-remembered past or the, you know, whatever that is. So I, I think those aspects were, again, dark as they are, I think very well played on. Yeah, they, there's definitely a lot of, of like uncovering the past and, and re-examining right. things were all perfect. And also, too, that kind of theme of of losing your humanity. Like, Dr. Manhattan's the most extreme example of that. He's like, literally, literally forgets that Laurie has to breathe when he brings her on Mars. Right. But, but that kind of recurs through a lot of the characters. You know, that Rorschach is slowly losing his humanity, too, in a different way, kind of becomes more and more unhinged. Or the comedian is sort of always a bit inhuman, right? He's amoral and doesn't really have human connection. And and also Adrian Veidt, too, he like True. loses humanity. So that it's kind of this recurring theme of like the further you are away from the people you love and having human grounding, the worst outcomes you have. It, it leads to bad things. Absolutely. One of the many reasons like this this book is awesome. I don't I don't want to like overstate here because that is my brand is to overstate on pretty much everything I say. But like I feel like every major conflict of the human experience is in Watchmen. It tackles so many topics and themes, whether briefly in a page or in deep of of morals and relationships and belief of beyond and I mean everything I feel like at some point is tackled. And sometimes smoothly, sometimes brilliantly with deep quotes that we've talked about, sometimes just hilariously in the background. But like it is such a comprehensive story <laughs> that is amazing. It covers all this yeah, stuff. There's a lot there and you kind of again it if you reread it, you get more out of it. Yeah. There are some failings there. Like, I don't think all the female characters are the best, like, painted. Like, Lori doesn't have a ton of agency or her mother doesn't either. The thing that's frustrating to me is, and this is a, I wish I could say in 2023, we were well past this, but we're not, (laughs) which is, you know, defining female characters either by their sexuality or by surviving sexual assault Mm -hmm. and utilizing that almost as a narrative for a man's story that is very prevalent here uh, with those yeah. characters. Cause what is it? Silk Spectre, Silk Spectre two. So, you know, Lori and her, her mother, what's her mom's name? Sally, 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 Sally Jupiter. Were there other female characters like main characters? I don't Not think alive. so. Right. Dr. Manhattan's girlfriend, original girlfriend that like, but she's again, yes. not much of a character too. Right. A previous superhero who was brutally removed from the plot, mm-hmm. from the old guard. Yeah. For subverting so many tropes, there was like a missed opportunity here. And I don't know if it was 
more himself or just, you know, that era that wasn't as much in the popular consciousness of creators. But for subverting so many of the tropes, it's kind of a a, a real shame that that wasn't one of them that that was used more effectively. I mean, Corey, with your like comic book history knowledge, like looking at the early 80s, do you have any more context of like how women were being portrayed in comics at the time? It's not great. I mean, that that's one of the big failings of comic books in general, comic book superheroes in particular. They were centered at teenage boys, right? Or or adolescent boys and and young men. And there there weren't a lot of female characters, there weren't there were very few female creators, artists, there still aren't a lot today. So it's it's just it's not great. It's not until you get into like the 90s and 2000s where you start to see more female creators and yeah. stronger female characters but it's, and it's isn't yeah squirrel girl or like ms marvel is one of the, the yeah. b- good examples yeah. or S- spider gwen there's some there's some some new like more modern but it's it's still not even great today yeah uh speaking of thing the more things change the more they stay the same just another quote on that kind of topic chris again it was hard to kind of get through them because they were so dense but you learned a lot of the backstory from hollis mason's journal pages and so there's one that's like excerpts of the studies at the military base on Dr. Manhattan and like what he's going to be all about. And so, quote, this is one of the scientists talking about Dr. Manhattan and what they're going to do with him. Currently, no nation on this planet is not involved in some form of armed struggle, if not against its neighbors, then against internal forces. Furthermore, as ever escalating amounts of money are poured into the pursuit of the specific weapon or conflict that will bring lasting peace, the drain in our economies creates a rundown urban landscape where crime flourishes and people are concerned less with national security than with simply personal security needed to stop at the store late at night for a quart of milk without being mugged. The places we struggled so viciously to keep safe are becoming increasingly dangerous. Again, that could have been written in 23, that could have been written in 93, it could have been written in 03, prescient for more and writing that. Yeah, and actually, I would I would mind like pivoting a little bit to talk about Alan Moore. Because sure. one of the things that I love about Watchmen so much is he, it kind of introduced me to Alan Moore, and Alan yeah. Moore kind of became one of my favorite creators, because I love everything of his that I've read. I, I haven't read all of his stuff, a couple big emissions, I haven't read From Hell, and I think there's one of the other big ones that, of his that I haven't read. But if if you at all like Watchmen, I highly recommend seeking out like V for Vendetta or the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or um, that Swamp Thing series that he did. But the the other thing that's that's really interesting about Moore, first of all, he's he's very cranky. He always has been. He's very critical of corporate anything and he and he, he really despises dc dc kind of treated them horribly mm. uh, like one of the things w- with watchmen is that dc promised that the rights to watchmen would revert to him once it went out of publication well watchmen's never gone out of print and they kind of purposely did that so that it would never revert back to him ah. they basically kind of screwed him out of that and he kind of got screwed over kind of again and again by the comic book industry and he, he finally just went off and created his own publisher. So he's very cranky about that. He's also kind of cranky about, we can talk about the impact going forward, but he's, he, he wasn't too happy with how Watchmen impacted comic books going forward. But he's also just a really interesting character himself. He's he's a practicing magician. Fantastic. Not a stage ma- magician, but more like an occult kind of wizard. Oh. He like performs rituals and summons entities and stuff like that. Like, one of the quotes, and I'm not bringing this up to make fun of him. It just gives you some insight into his character. But he, he describes an evening, and I quote, 
talking to an entity that tells you that it is a specific goetic demon that was first mentioned in the book of Tobit and the Apocrypha. So he's, he is deep into the occult and mysticalness of things out there, which is fun. I don't want to make this awkward, but I'm pretty sure that's a Dan Aykroyd line from Ghostbusters is what you just read. I'm not sure. I was just going to say, is he and Dan Aykroyd good friends? Do they have they fireside would be such chats? Buddies. That would be awesome. I mean, his beliefs are unconventional, but like to kind of frame it a little differently, though, another quote of his is he's like, the idea of magic is some weird alien Doctor Strange dimension that one can escape to from this one doesn't really appeal to me. I think of it as that if magic is anything, it's about realizing the unbelievable supernatural magic is just the fact that we are thinking and having this conversation, realizing just how magical every instance is, every drawn breath, every thought. So he sees the world as magical in the way it is. And also kind of the idea that ideas have power, like an idea is almost like a magic spell. Like, you know, an idea from two guys um, from 1938 who come up with Superman. And now, you know, we have a multi-billion dollar industry, sort of like a magic spell. So anyway, Alan Moore, very interesting guy. I, I, I encourage you reading some of his other stuff or seeking out his interviews. What I find really interesting is his thought about magic, and there is something magical about this story, and yet it's so grounded in science. Like from the creation Mm -hmm. of Dr. Manhattan, even to dropping a giant psychic squid, has a scientific underpinning as stretchy as that might be. Yeah. You know, that's probably the the biggest sort of – deus machina aspect of this story but like you know it it isn't just i created it with my superpowers and now the thing is here when you go back and piece together the story you've been getting very tiny tidbits that something's going on on this island and you don't know what and when it all comes together you're like wtf but i suppose he could have written it in a more magical non-scientific way but it seems like for the most part everything is grounded in some bit of reality even down to the fact of like you know technology does change there's different science in 1980 watchman world because dr manhattan exists and of Mm -hmm. course if you have someone like that existing technology is going to be far more advanced in some ways that was a second read catch that i got that rorschach's mask is made of a fabric invented by dr manhattan what a great detail That's why you get the movement Mm -hmm. of the ink on the face. (laughs) That's awesome. And you don't learn that right away either, which is really cool. Um, Of course, I didn't even learn the darn thing was moving. I think watching the motion (laughs) comic, that's where I picked it up. When I watched the motion comic, I was like, it's moving. Again, if you paid more attention to his face throughout the various panels, you would notice it's different shapes. However, first read, you're taking so much in. That was clearly something that I wasn't consciously attending to. One other thing I thought was really interesting, I think one of the huge subversions is our main protagonist dies, our heroes don't really win, and our villain is the one who makes the biggest sacrifice. And that's pretty atypical, I think, a lot of superhero stories. Usually, if anyone dies, it's the villain. The heroes triumph and save the day, and the sacrifice is Batman has to go into exile Uh, and become the Dark Knight in order to keep Gotham safe in the future. You know, that kind of a thing. And, yeah, I mean, I guess arguably, you know, in in some ways, Manhattan does... No, no, he doesn't really sacrifice. He leaves because he's like, Earth is weird. I'm out. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) I can't handle you humans anymore. (laughs) Nonsense. Yeah. So uh, I, I just think that's really interesting. And I have to imagine that is part of 
again, this intentional storytelling of like, we're not going to do this in a, a conventional way. It's going to be a lot different than what you expect. Well, I mean, to quote the Comics Code Authority, in every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. Well, there you go. It's almost, it almost feels like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbon are like, they read through the Comics Code Authority and are like, yeah. okay, we got to not do this, not do this. Not, it's like, yeah. it is kind of pretty wild. Yeah. But yeah, it's like literally comics couldn't do that by the role of the Comics Code Authority to even tell a story like this. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, just to add on, like, I, I love, first of all, I've already talked about, like, I love the reality blending of it, that these are, they're like real presidents, real news anchors, real cities where, like, instead of, you you get Avengers today, and it's like, we're gonna blow up Zakovia. And I was like, I don't care what's Zakovia, I don't even know. <laughs> like, so it just, it just grounds it so much that makes, it made me feel so much closer to the characters, because it felt grounded. But your point, like, I feel like every superhero story, at least that I've encountered, is either an origin story or, like, the climax of their career. Like, all the Tony Stark Avenger movies, they're all, like, the best Avengers they can be, like, whatever's going on, or origin. But this is more of, like, we all have to come out of retirement. It's like an epilogue to huge stories that have already happened as Watchmen. And now it's, like, mm. the bigger story none of them expected they'd have to get into, and they all suck and are rusty. Or illegal, like it's it's such <laughs> yeah. a, it's such a subversion. It's so interesting. It's so unique. Yeah. Okay. So let's kind of wrap up and talk about. You know, we haven't gotten to this yet. How was this thing received? It's out in the world. We've talked a little bit about its impact, but Ben, do you have some notes on initial reception? Thoughts at the time? Yeah, absolutely. My research was extremely thorough. Thank goodness on the back of the copy of Watchmen I have is all of its critical acclaim when it came out. <laughs> Which is the most unbiased source, by the way. Please go. Right, absolutely. They put nothing. Yeah, exactly. But it was one of Time Magazine's 100 best English language novels since 1923. Of course, that was published in 1924. So, uh, you know, they were sort of prescient again. They knew 86 was coming. It won both Eisner and Hugo Awards. Uh, the New York Times was quoted saying, Remarkable. The would-be heroes of Watchmen have staggeringly complex psychological profiles. And the dude who uh, co-created Lost, which we're going to get to later in contemporary culture, Damon Lindelhoff, uh, quote, the greatest piece of popular fiction ever produced. All right. I could talk a little bit about, about the reception at the time, too, because it, it wasn't published in one giant graphic novel. Right. It, was, right. it was published month to month, right? 12 issues over, I guess, a year. It was, yeah. It was a sensation at the time. A sensation being a, a very small group of nerds who collected comic books <laughs> and comic book stores. This is probably the least popular pop culture thing you've talked about at the time in the 80s that you, you've talked about on, on 80s High. We've talked about snorks, so let's just be real clear. <laughs> let's get real we, we could not even find snorks to watch. We couldn't <laughs> find one full episode. I bet more people experienced snorks in the 80s than Watchmen in the 80s. I, I almost guarantee. All right. All right. Um, but, but there was – people were going nuts because it was a murder mystery, right? And people were trying to figure out what the mystery was month to oh, month nice. and each new issue and like it, how it tripled out. So there was, there was a pretty big sensation when that happened too. Because it is such a niche audience, that's not probably a, a huge segment. But amongst the people who did read it, it you know, initially was – quite impactful it sounds like it didn't like crash at the beginning and then only gain notoriety you know five years later or something like that no it was a big impact right away well listen guys Corey, you talked about sugar cubes i was about ready to open a can of beans eat them cold uh mm. that sounds pretty good i wonder why my front door was kicked in was that also, you <laughs> also i hear calamari is on the menu so <laughs> i think 
It's lunchtime, everybody. But before we mold our mashed potatoes and gravy into shapes uh, and try to discern what those shapes are, we have a, our second big announcement for this episode, which is Bonkos, Wackos, Bananas. <laughs> We're really bringing in the heat our senior year. We really wanted to make our fourth season as special as possible and try a bunch of new stuff. You know, we've, in previous episodes, I think, balked at this idea, but we've managed to nab sponsorship of this podcast. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, bingo. If that was on your card. Woo, 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 woo. We're doing sponsorship because this is the most radical 80s sponsorship you could ever have. It's not meal kits. It's not underwear. It's not socks. We're being sponsored by, oh my gosh, Ben, you just got to say the words. I can't believe this. Well, it's choose your own sponsorship and we chose choose your own adventure. <laughs> What? It's pretty great. This is not a joke, everybody. Choose your own adventure. Choose Co., the company that still owns, runs, releases the property, is actually sponsoring this podcast right now. Insane. I love that it's Choose Co. Right? The company's called Isn't Choose it great? Co. That's great. Choose Co. Yeah, yeah. So this is the series of books that we covered way back in season one, episode four. And we made this great partnership. So we're we're going to have ads for season four. They're going to be sponsoring this season of the podcast. So we definitely want you to tune in during the lunch break. We're still going to have our retro commercial. We cannot get rid of that. But we're going to also pop in a little ad spot. But this is amazing because... They're still releasing books. They are also a place where you can find vintage choose-your-own-adventure books. So if there's one you read as a kid, you might find it on their website. It could even be autographed by the author. If it's been 30 years and you're like, I just want to know what happened if I chose to turn to page 48 instead of 27, (laughs) this is your moment right now. This is what's really cool. First off, if you're an adult, you can go back and like read new books, read more books. Or maybe you have kiddos in your life and you're like, I want them to experience the awesomeness. Well, they can read contemporary. There's like stories about spies, unicorns. There's all sorts of like really cool stuff out there. They even have a math book now teaching algebra, like through creative storytelling, which is really awesome. Interesting. And then the other thing that we learned, they actually have two tabletop games. And I actually played one of those tabletop games with a friend and promptly made every bad decision and lost gloriously. But you're still here to talk about it. You didn't choose the death ending. I heard the game, the game is sort of possessed like a game Alan Moore would really dig. So I hear you can die at the end of it. So I'm glad you're here. I mean, we did not make it. Uh, the evil did triumph in this game. But like, if you're ever like, this would be a really cool thing to bring, you know, to an experience with friends around a table where a story actually unfolds, you can do that. There's two choose your own adventure tabletop games, which is super cool. So that's a little extra intro, but I'm just really excited about this. So please check out our sweet commercial during the lunch break. Don't skip twice. All right, everyone, without further ado, let's head to lunch. Beware and warning, this book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. If that brings back childhood memories of reading past your bedtime and keeping your fingers positioned just so in order to go back and cheat death, then you are part of the Choose Your Own Adventure Generation, the fourth best-selling children's book series of all time. Since 2006, Choose Your Own Adventure has relaunched copies of original 80s bestsellers as well 
well as all new books, tabletop games, and graphic novel adaptations of the famous game book series. If you decide to use all of your numerous talents and much of your enormous intelligence to introduce interactive game books to a new generation, visit CYOA.com. Use code 80SHIGH for 20% off your first order. That's code 80SHIGH. From the depths of space, from the edge of the earth. Timex takes quartz to make a watch beyond time as we know it. The new Timex. The new Timex quartz. A watch so accurate, you may have to reset it only once this year. Thin, sleek, beautiful. The new Timex quartz. Built and priced in the Timex tradition. Timex. We make technology beautiful. All right, guys, I ate that whole can of beans. I hope that's not going to affect the air quality here in contemporary culture. Where do we go from Watchmen, the graphic novel? What comes next? What's influenced? What happens after the 80s? Pretty important things to talk about. But the first thing I have is 2008. Do you guys have anything earlier than that? I've got something from 2001. What do you have? My first job ever was waiting tables at a 50s-themed diner, Johnny Rockets. Innocent little teenage Ben. And I, uh, I went up to take an order, and this older individual, when, I, when she says, I would like a cup of coffee. And I said, oh, of course, how do you take your coffee? And she said, black as the devil and sweet as a stolen kiss. That's a quote from Lori in Watchmen. When I'm sorry, a customer said this to you? I was confused but intrigued. Very much so at the same time. Black as the devil and sweet as a stolen kiss. I had never heard it anywhere else. Wow, that's insane. And it has haunted me for like for decades after. Like, what did that mean? What well, was that all about? I've so. never heard anywhere else. And then it's in, <laughs> it's in Watchmen. It made me really happy to see that. Wow. So she didn't explain herself in the moment. That's, that's No, a, she, no. <laughs> just a little <laughs> sly smirk. And I'm like, are yeah. we about to fight or date? What's happening right now? <laughs> it was great. Uh, you know, I mentioned the motion comic. In 2008, the graphic novel is adapted to a motion comic, and it consists of 12 25 to 30 minute segments, and they're each based on the chapters from the book. Basically, it kind of brings that graphic novel to life in a limited animated series. It's not fully animated, but think of like the the panels from the comic that are have a little bit of movement or there's that, uh, what is it, the Ken Burns effect where there's some yeah, right. sideways we'll zoom and some action. zoom-ins and outs and all that kind of stuff. And Dave Gibbons did actually have oversight on the project. All of those chapters are included. It adds motion, it adds voice, and it adds sound. All the characters are voiced by one person, actor Tom Stetschult. I hope I said his name correctly, Stetschult. And the music is composed by Lenny Moore. Now, it's pretty much on a bridge. The one thing that is not there are those extra supplemental materials between the chapters. So a lot of that stuff we've been talking about, like the, was it Under the Hood? Is that what that expose tell-all novel was under called? The, that? Is it Hood? Cowl? Yeah, Under the Hood. I or think is it Hood because he's an engine, he's a mechanic. Yeah, that's what it is. Well, you're there's right, also right. the Hooded Justice was one of the- It's very confusing. Old. Oh, that's right, because there was like a story about him and his potential identity. There was some other figure that they thought may have been that guy, right? That was like a whole... Right. And you missed the most riveting one, which is Dan Dryberg's thing about owls, which is 
pre-dry. <laughs> okay. I, I, and I honestly don't quite know how that fits in, but yeah, it's, I mean, I, from a, I get it, but it's also a little boring. So if you love all that material, it's not in the motion comic. If you don't care about it, I would highly recommend it. I Like I said, the second half I took in that way and I thought it was very well done and it felt like a seamless transition from reading to watching and I certainly accomplished it much quicker than I would have read it. So if you want to experience it on a time crunch especially, I cannot endorse enough. It is on uh, Max right now, but it's actually also on YouTube for free. So you don't have to have a subscription to anything. You can just watch it on YouTube. It's pretty awesome. I did remember one thing. So the reason why there really wasn't anything, any other Watchmen things until that point, they did try to make like comic book sequels and prequels. Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons played around with some ideas of having like a Rorschach comic right? or like the one that they were kind of looking at was doing like a prequel comic that was focused on the, you know, the golden age superheroes. Oh, neat. Ultimately, none of that coalesced. And, and also just Alan Moore again, cranky, kooky genius was just against any kind of ad- adaptation. So we right. really didn't have anything until, you know, 2008. That's a great point. Yeah, there were some things that were behind the scenes, but never fully materialized. So the motion comic is released on DVD March of 2009. And that is also to coincide with the film that comes out in 2009. So let's talk about the graphic novel deemed unfilmable. <laughs> Who films the unfilmable? Zack Snyder does. This is like Jodorowsky for Dune. Like, what madman would attempt to do such a thing? Old Snides, of course. So Zack Snyder is at the director helm. I'm sure you know his name. He's the director behind 300, Justice League, Wonder Woman, Superman. This is a screenplay by David Hayter and Alex C. This is a movie about two decades in the making. They've been trying to do a live-action film adaptation basically since October of 1987. Bonkers. But for several reasons, one of which you mentioned, Alan Moore had absolutely no interest whatsoever in being involved with this. Again, he wanted to create something that would not exist outside of the comic book genre. It is meant to be something that could not exist in film. Well, and also, again, he was screwed over over and over Fair. again by yeah, right. DC and, and big publishers. And that that's another reason why I was not interested in being involved in this You wonder stuff. why the writer's strike is still going on after hearing how DC treated more. Like, come on. Right. Yeah. It's something that happens over and over again in comics, how creators get screwed over. Yeah. We left on break with the strike. We came back to the same stri- well, still strikes, striking. I should say. And we're yeah. still yeah, back to the strikes. Strike, so... Yeah. Once again, the more things change, the more they stay the same, unfortunately. So Alan Moore, of course, declines the uh, to write the screenplay. Fox then enlists screenwriter Sam Ham. We've heard that name before, Ben. Sam Ham, back in action. Samuel Hamuel, because Sam Ham <laughs> was the screenwriter behind Batman, the yeah. 1988 version, the Tim Burton version. So Ham rewrote the ending saying he wanted to make it more manageable uh, as a conclusion. It involved an assassination and a time paradox. So he really changes the movie ending. Other names that are attached along the way, Terry Gilliam, Monty Python fame. Yeah, right. Darren Aronofsky was on board at one point to direct. Uh, Behind such works as Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, many, many other films. Even Tim Burton, Mr. Burton himself, was apparently interested 
but they were not interested in Timmy. Yeah, what a that thousand percent different movie. Wow, that would yeah. be nuts. Yeah. So a lot of different talents, names, you know, very recognizable. There's a lot more. We're shorthanding this, of course. But that's really kind of what is happening in those two decades between the graphic novel coming out, finding its immediate success, and then 2009 when we get the Zack Snyder movie. So who's in this? There's some well-known people in here. Uh, So first off, we have Jackie Earl Harley as Walter Kovacs slash Rorschach, who later goes on to play Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street. The name sounded familiar and I couldn't quite place him. Yeah, right. Now I get it. He's Freddy. That's awesome. He's well cast too. He's it's oh my gosh. He's a good great yeah. job. Yeah, he's, he's he awesome nails the voice. This. He nails the tone. The yeah, do it. <laughs> and I mean, it's one of my favorite lines in all of comic books. Like, and I'm gonna quote it even poorly, but one of you could do it. But like, you, what you fail to understand is you're not trapped in here with me. No, what you fail to understand is I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with me. Like, oh, that was great. That line is killer. It's delivered so well. I love that. If I go to prison, I'm using that line. It probably won't work, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to try it out and see what happens. Well, and one thing, rereading it this time, I caught that that you, you don't actually see in real time, like Rorschach saying it. It's, I, I think it's in this psychiatrist notes or something. Oh. It's never, it's never like in a word bubble in an image, which I, I found interesting. It's awesome. That's good. Uh, Patrick Wilson plays Dan Dryberg slash Night Owl. Uh, he was in Prometheus as well as Insidious. Our horror podcast fan, Ron, would probably know him best from Insidious. He's yes. sort of a big deal in those series, yeah. And by the way, a lot of these people have been in like a bajillion things. I'm just going to – I'm naming yeah, just a few yeah. highlights that you might recognize. Then we have Malin Ackerman as Lori Jupiter slash Silk Spectre 2. From Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. That was the movie she was in that I recognized. That's crazy. <laughs> I remember from that. She's also apparently in an episode of How I Met Your Mother. Um, a very well-known face, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Most notably, most recently, Negan from Walking Dead. Uh, he plays Edward Blake slash the comedian. I loved that. I saw the Watchmen movie. It was a long time before I got into The Walking Dead. Of course, you and I have talked about how much we just love the character of Negan and mm. Lucille. But to look back at Watchmen movie and see just how jacked Morgan got for that role versus like skinny post-apocalyptic Negan, like that dude worked out for this movie. Another spot on casting too. Like he, yeah, oh, he's exactly so what you'd good. expect, right? And even if you don't recognize him because he's got like the mutton chops and the mustache and the stogie, as soon as you hear his voice, you're like, okay, that's the dude. Like he just has that so voice good. where you can spot it a mile away without fail. You know who that is. Uh, Billy Crudup plays John Osterman slash Dr. Manhattan. He was in Big Fish and later yeah, in Justice yeah. League. Now there's Zack Snyder. Well, I suppose there's a Zack Snyder cut of that movie, mm-hmm. uh, but I believe he's in both versions of it. We have Stephen McHattie as Hollis Mason slash the original Night Owl. And I recognized him because he plays the terrifying psychiatrist boyfriend of Elaine's in Seinfeld. He's Dr. Rustin. It's like season four. He plays this like really creepy psychiatrist that she's dating. And I was like, this dude looks really familiar. So I had to include him. We also have Carla Gugino as Sally Jupiter, the original Silk Spectre. She, as a, I believe, a, a young lady, was in Troop Beverly Hills, very 80s property there. Amazing. Spy Kids and Night at the Museum. And she was also in Sin City. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Yes, mm-hmm. also Sin City. 
And then lastly, I wanted to mention Danny Woodburn. He plays big figure, the uh, the character yeah. in jail. <laughs> and that's Mickey from Seinfeld, another Seinfeld crossover. Oh, it's, it's Mickey. So I was like, oh, I got I to gotta shout out some of my people. So this film is polarized by fans and critics. Uh, the style was praised, but, uh, you know, Snyder was kind of accused of making an action film that lacked the thematic depth and nuance of the comic. What are our thoughts it's been a while since I've rewatched since I watched it. It didn't have a big impact on me. It, it just felt like okay, this is a pretty rote telling of Watchmen. Mm. It does lose the ineffable quality of Watchmen, which is which is so much about comics and doing things you can only do in comics. Sure, you lose kind of the I guess the soul of it. Like it, everything looks right and the casting's right, and they didn't cheap out on anything. I'm not against the redoing of the ending because the ending is very different. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just it left me kind of cold. And I didn't think it was bad, but it, it, it it's not what Watchmen should be, I guess. Okay. Ben, what was your take on it? I like straight up love this movie. I can't say that it's like in a top ranking of favorite films for me, but it's definitely a thousand percent, like very honestly, on a rather frequent rotation. And it's definitely like a movie like, oh, it's late Saturday night. I kind of want to watch something. What do, I, what do I feel like going on? And like, I, I would say Watchmen comes up every few months. It's beautiful. Like Snyder, Snyder took what he learned in 300. And of course, like Sin City came before this. Also a Frank Miller story. But like adapted, I thought a graphic novel really well. I mean, totally. It's like any book you adapt to a movie. You lose so much like internal dialogue and stuff like that. However, I will say, I, I wrote a note here when I watched this last month to get ready for this. There's so much dialogue in this movie that has nothing to do with, like, the central crisis. So many characters, minor characters, major characters, just have, like, normal conversations or, or like, deep heart-to-heart because they're old friends. Where, like, any modern superhero movie, 99% of the conversation is about whatever the central crisis is or the villain. But, like, the, it, the movie does, I feel like, a good job of, again, making this a grounded real world because people just, like talk about business or the economy or like the weather like it's not every conversation is thanos how are we gonna defeat him you know the movie does a super cool job of like all the background that happens in hollis mason's journals the opening credits of the movie you know playing uh the times they are a changing and like some really good shots that like get you caught up i thought that was a that's a music as a whole thing in the movie where i love yes. like you know when you read the book there'll be a little caption that says like you as the reader may hear this song in the background, whatever, however they do it. But hearing that music of the time in the movie is like a really awesome experience. I could gloat on and on, but I actually really, really enjoy the movie. That's awesome. I found it to be a very faithful adaptation of the story. I was uh, surprised that it followed as closely as it did. Now, I mean, yeah. it does focus mainly on the central parts of it. You lose the news guy, the newsstand guy, yeah. and the, the kid who's reading the comic. You you lose the whole black freighter subplot you lose the like there's also the news reporter guy with his son that he keeps bad mouthing that you know ultimately at the end gets rorschach's journal it's up to you to publish this or whatever like all of those are, are stripped out for obvious reasons but those characters make a cameo like all four of those characters do show up however briefly so it's kind of a little nod to if you've read it it's like Okay, we know it's not here, but we see you. We couldn't include it in this story. Here you go. So I thought that was really cool. I thought it was interesting that um, Ozymandias' suit was a criticism of like, uh, or sort of a wink to the 90s Batman rubber suits. Oh, totally. With like the accentuated muscles and the, 
you know, of course, the bat nipples. Giant nipples, and, yeah. yeah. And his nipples were huge. It was yeah. crazy. Once again, way more blue wang than I expected to see. It was like, oh boy. Um, okay, but here's the thing about that incredibly well-detailed designed appendage. This is a 14-year-old movie. The CG, I think, in the movie holds up really well. And like you, people always talk about like, oh, the Jurassic Park dinosaurs were great and then everyone screwed it up after that or whatever. There's a lot of CG from the 90s and 2000s that aged terribly. And I think this movie competes easily today with CG. I, I, Dr. Manhattan looks fantastic. But so does a lot of the other CG effects. Yeah, I, I mean, visually, I thought it looked really solid. Like, I, yeah. I wouldn't say it was like when I watched Alien 3 and I was like, oh, yikes. Uh, that, yeah, that one hurt a lot. Yeah, and Zack Snyder is like a talented visual director. Like yeah. he, he does well with imagery. He's, uh, later on, he's not so great with story all the time, but like his his imagery is great. I'm gonna need to rewatch that movie and kind of engage with it as a movie, which is the, a fair way to treat any movie rather than putting the burden of its source material on it, like you do with any adaptation. Um, it just it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. That is one thing I've learned to pay more attention to. I think just through like hearing creators talk about work and, you know, there's so much more commentary about things through podcasts or through, you know, director commentaries, cast commentaries. And so a, a lot of it is like you can't make a a beat for beat Harry Potter and Prisoner of Azkaban or, you know, or Order mm. the Phoenix, right? You just can't do that. You would need an entire season, which apparently they're doing. But same with this. It's like, this is a massive property. This would be a short run series if you really wanted to put all that stuff in there and do it all justice. But I feel like to adapt it the way they did made sense. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of other little changes, but the big one that we've kind of talked about is there's no psychic alien squid at the end. Yeah, I really wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this because like repackaging what you just said in a slightly different way is like it's such a huge story that you've got to cut a lot to fit it into a three-hour director's cut if that's the version you want to watch the movie. So you get stuff cut, but Snyder or anyone else in the movie doesn't really add anything. It is like a really faithful shot-for-shot lift from the graphic novel, which makes it awesome. There's some tiny tweaks that don't matter, but right, the, the end massive climax is a different villainous plot. Why? What's going on? What's what's with the change? Well, because Snyder said, we figured it would take 15 minutes to explain the squid's appearance correctly. Otherwise, it's completely out of context and makes no sense. For an almost three-hour movie, he did not have 15 extra minutes. Okay, it was like a time thing. Okay. And so to me, it's like, I thought it worked in as much as it creates the tension to stop the nuclear war, to stop Armageddon. And it creates a reason for Dr. Manhattan to leave Earth. It's different. It's not of his own accord. He kind of does, in this case, do the hero sacrifice of, I will leave, you know, because I've been framed, but it's the right call to make. Yeah. I can't fault him for it. I think it makes complete sense. Introduce The squid is already an insane concept in a graphic totally novel, in a comic. To drop it in this movie that tonally would not work would be just like the most bizarre thing he could have ever done. Well, I'd almost argue in the graphic novel that the octopus like almost doesn't work. Like, cause it is so far out of left field and the rest of the story is so grounded other than Dr. Manhattan. And when the first time you read it, it's like, wait, what, where does this (laughs) come from? Like, right. I mean, even though they kind of lay all these Easter eggs and stuff like that, it's still, it's still 
is jarring and almost doesn't quite feel like it fits with the rest of the book. Right. And if you did it wrong in the movie, it would like be laughably yeah, bad. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Right? If you screw it up, it'll screw up big. That's a good point. Yeah, right. So I, I can see the kind of more understated. And, and if, if we haven't stated, we're going to spoil the movie too. But like it's it, they basically the plot is that Vite makes it look like Dr. Manhattan attacks Earth. Right. Essentially. Well, and I think specifically, it's still New York. So, you know, the, the whole concept, of course, is he's the reason there is no nuclear war in this story, right? He's the stalemate because he works for the US, so the Russians yeah. have no play. But if the conceit is Dr. Manhattan has attacked America, not just Earth, right? But he attacks mm-hmm. America. Then it's kind of the, okay, well, if he's attacking the country he works for, right? What is it? superheroes exist and he's American, right? Which I guess plausibly it may not be as convincing as like uniting against a common foe that's truly the other, which a giant psychic squid alien would certainly be more other than anything. But as a shorthand, I was like, I see why they did it and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Again, for the movie. Solid point. Anything else about the movie, guys? The other thing, because, you know, 80s High, we are about trying to bring you lots and lots of joy. And although this topic is a little hard to get joy in there, look, if your thing is watching two superheroes make Nookie for an uncomfortable amount of time, this movie is for you. Stop shopping. So that that's like a big difference from the graphic novels. Like when the whole like Dan Jyberg gets his mojo back, Austin Powers style. That is an extended lovemaking scene. And maybe I'm just watching the wrong movies, but like big block summer blockbuster superhero movies just don't have like eight minute full nude sex scenes in them anymore. I'm sorry, is it eight minutes or is this been exaggeration? I mean, it's probably been exaggeration. Okay, Maybe it's right. 10 seconds, but it feels so long because you just don't see it. So what you're saying is that if they cut the sex scene, they could have put the squid in. Like that he he could have borrowed that time to introduce the giant cut squid. Cut one kraken for another. Uh, Fewer oh. owls, more squids. <laughs> I will say, speaking of owls, I thought Night Owl's outfit and Archimedes looked fantastic in the movie. It's a dope. Yeah, it's an excellent ad. I mean, all the costumes are pretty Fantastic. Like all sure. the adaptations of the superheroes are pretty amazing. But Agreed. Night Owl is hard to get because it is a weird, a weird costume. Yeah. Well, it's somehow like, you know, it's it's clearly riffing off Batman. Dryberg is is Bruce Wayne, but like it's somehow original. Like it's still mm-hmm. unique. It doesn't feel like such a brazen ripoff of Batman, although it is like a, a nighttime avian influenced <laughs> ship driving dude yeah. in a cowl. Gadgets and yeah. Right. So 2017 to 2019, we actually get a little bit of a return, kind of, of Watchmen with Doomsday Clock. Now, Corey, I asked you before we recorded if you were familiar with this, and you said a little. So basically, this is a comic book limited series published by DC Comics. It's written by Jeff Johns with art by Gary Frank and color by Brad Anderson. And this is a series that concludes a story that's established in the new 52 and DC Rebirth, which, Corey, we're going to ask you to just kind of shorthand what that means, particularly people who may not be as familiar with comic books and what is a a pretty big trend within comic books every, you know, decade, decade and a half. Uh, But it's kind of billed as a direct sequel slash crossover to the original graphic novel. I don't know if sequel is kind of the right word. I guess it's sort of a continuation. But what do you know about this New 52 DC Rebirth and this specifically Doomsday Clock? Yeah, New 52 is like a, one of the many reboots of the DC universe. Like every once in a while, they'll like 
reset everything because they there's too much continuity built up and they're like all right, all right we gotta we gotta tell superman's origin story over again because there's too much stuff going on or that's essentially what they do and as a part of that i think they wanted to juice the numbers or whatever and kind of tie the watchmen into it i don't know much i think there was a little bit of them actually entering the dc comics world because that's the other main thing about watchmen it has nothing to do with the dc comic universe right, right. i never read well enough into it to figure out how they were merging the two universes i don't think it was a permanent thing i think they were trying to bring dr manhattan into the fold i think is kind of what they plan to do but ultimately backed off of that because ultimately i think in the comic book world watchman is has this sort of like sacred feeling around it it's almost like this holy text or whatever and by pulling it into the dc universe i think people just resisted that uh sure and it wasn't critically well received so, I mean, that's Doomsday Clock if you're a completionist. Just know that's out there. Let's at least wrap up with the, you know, what came after with the television series in 2019. This is a limited series that is based, again, off of the Watchmen graphic novel. It was created for HBO by Damon Lindelof. Lindelof served as the executive producer and writer as well. It features an ensemble cast, including Regina King, who I'm going to do some 80s references here because there's a lot of great 80s references. She oh, was in, good. She was in 227, a television mm. show at that time. If you guys remember Jack A. Wiz Mary. Oh, nice. Okay, good. 227, Regina. So she's she's got the 80s cred right there, which is great. Speaking of 80s cred, Don frickin' Johnson... <laughs> Miami Vice much? Hello. So good. So Amazing. Good. You've got Tim Blake Nelson. Didn't really have a big 80s credit, but a brother where art thou is what I certainly know him from the most. Like that that to me is like yeah. one of his best properties that he's in. Great character as well. We also get Lewis Gossett Jr. Oh my goodness. Talk about a man who has spanned decades and decades. My goodness, but the 80s reference I have for this is Iron Eagle because there's like four or five yeah. Iron Eagle movies. My brother loved Iron Eagle. Is that like a That's helicopter awesome. thing? Kind of like Airwolf or something like that? It's definitely like a military plane thing, but my okay. brother loved those movies. Which, quick hot take. So Jason Manzukas on the How Did This Get Made podcast, he was super into any helicopter TV shows or movies in the 80s. Yeah. And he explained the whole reason we got all those was returning Vietnam helicopter pilots. So you had all these Americans coming back who knew how to fly helicopters super well and needed work. And Hollywood was like, let's get a bunch of stunt pilots and make some awesome helicopter properties. That's a Great tidbit. I love that. Right? Kind of awesome. Thus, Airwolf was born. Yeah. Exactly. They literally. <laughs> it's great. Uh, Jeremy Irons is in this for crying Always out loud. good. Makes everything better. He's fantastic in it. They don't come out and say, at least early on, exactly who he is. So I won't spoil it here, just in the sense that I'm trying not to spoil too much here. Yeah. There's tons of other people. Those are the, the I would say, the most known folks in this well, show. There, there's one other 80s person in there, please, too. Please, please. Gene Smart shows up in it from Designing Women, if you know Gene Smart. Good, good catch. She's also one of those that I probably shouldn't say who she is. I can't remember if it's a spoiler of like who, what character she is. Yeah, I I will say, uh, I think I mentioned at the beginning, I've only was able to watch two episodes. So I don't believe her character had shown up in the first two episodes. So I did not realize she was in that. That's super cool. 
So Lindelof like kind of pitched this idea as a remix of the original comic series. He said, it's technically a sequel. It takes place 34 years after the events of the comics in that same alternate reality. And Lindelof said he wanted to introduce new characters and conflicts, which created a new story within the Watchmen continuity. So he wanted to do that rather than do like a a complete reboot, restart, refresh of it. So like just a quick plot overview. The series focuses on events surrounding racist violence in 2019 Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it is set in present day, uh, much like the graphic novel was for its time. And the plot is there is a white supremacist group called the 7th Cavalry. Uh, They've taken up arms against Tulsa Police Department because of perceived racial injustices. And this whole act causes the police to conceal their identities. They wear masks so that they uh, are not going to be targets for the 7th Cavalry. Uh, But ultimately, there's a big event called the White Knight where I think like 40-some police officers are attacked in unison. And so – Basically, there are two police officers who stay on to rebuild the force. One is Angela Abar, who's portrayed by Regina King. Uh, she's a detective known as Sister Knight, and she is investigating the murder of her friend and of another character, which I also won't reveal, and <laughs> discovers secrets regarding the situation around vigilantism. So again, we start off with a murder that then kind of propels into this whole mystery of what the heck is going on, larger plot afoot. Corey, you've seen the entire thing, right? Yeah, I have. I've watched the whole series. I loved it. Like, love, loved it. It's It feels like a worthy successor, in a way, to the comic. And it very much is a sequel to the comic. Like, it not the deals movie. with- That's a good point. Not the movie. Yep. Yeah, like, there's a squid and all that kind of stuff. It's um, it's really well done. It's it's really smart. It corrects some of the f- well, not corrects, but it it deals with some of the things that the book doesn't deal very well with. Like there are strong female characters, and, and like Regina King's amazing in it. It also deals with a part of American society, unfortunately, that the book pretty much completely annoys, ignores, which is racism and right. like racial history and and the conflict there and 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 how damaging that is. I watched it in 2020, like in the middle of 2020, and it was a very weird experience to watch because it's yeah. there are like characters in masks, yeah. and it's like about racial violence and conflict with the police. And I'm watching it in summer of 2020 when Black Lives Matters was happening and everybody was wearing masks from the pandemic. Weirdly prescient, even though there were different things. Although right. you don't have to be like a psychic to realize that there's going to be, you know, racial issues and stuff like that in America, unfortunately. But um, it's just super well done. It also like calls back to the the book in surprising ways, but it also goes in directions that the book doesn't go and tells a new story. It's it's really wonderful. It's really it's it's amazing. I highly recommend it. Yeah, even in the first couple of episodes, there are some fun little nods that I really want to say, but I kind of don't want to give them away. But they are really interesting nods to show like. You're in the same universe. And it's not just like a, see what we did there? Wink, wink. Mm -hmm. It feels like, to me at least, it fit in seamlessly. Again, there's nine episodes. I've only watched two. So I've still got seven more hours because they're all an hour-long episode, basically. So I've got more to do. But I, I will say I was kind of hooked and intrigued by it. And the one thing that I thought was really interesting is, Corey, you mentioned that it illuminates 
a part of American history and, and present. But one of the ways it was critically praised was for presenting the events of the Tulsa race massacre in 1921, which up until this show premiered, wasn't very well documented or talked about. I mean, historians had documented the event, but really nobody was showing it, particularly in film or television. It's an obscure part of history, and it was really challenging for projects to even get funding if they were going to address the subject matter. And so the fact that they were able to work it in in a compelling way, I think in a lot of ways did set the stage for other works. You know, I think of Lovecraft Country, which we've brought up on this show before, which also takes a, speaking of squid monsters, does take a look at Lovecraftian horror and maps it over onto racism and segregation. And I just have to wonder that this opens up some great possibilities for storytelling. And so it was great that they were both able to make it and that it had such a a, a big impact that people, hopefully, well, if we can ever get the studios to resolve the current issue we have going on, more creators can get their works actually funded and, and into production to tell these kinds of stories. Yeah, because there was a real moment where that like the Tulsa massacre and the history of that kind of came back into cultural consciousness because of the show. Right. And there were plenty of articles and kind of a re-examination of that terrible event in Tulsa. Now, Ben, you had a different experience. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, you guys and like everyone else, this everyone loved this show. It did really well. On, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got an aggregate score of 96%, certified fresh. Uh, HBO said the first episode of this series, when it came out, had more than one and a half million viewers on the first night, which is the biggest opening broadcast of any uh, debut episode for any premium cable show uh, that HBO had on the service. So it did super great. Now, I... Unfortunately, in our house, we only have one streaming service at a time. We like watch all the things we want to watch, then we cancel it, we move on to the next one and go on. So we, d- we didn't have HBO right now to like rewatch it and do it. But when it first came out, I did watch a couple of them. I honestly just can't really remember a lot. I think the first two uh, just didn't hook me. As Corey explained, like, you know, just like a couple chapters in a great book, sometimes it takes you a little while to get into it. And maybe I should have stuck around for a couple more episodes. But there is one person out there who probably really hates the TV series, and that's Dave Givens, the artist from The Watchmen, who, at least in the 2018 version of the graphic novel I have, he does the foreword for it. And he's quoted, For all its breadth and detail, actual and implied, Watchmen is finite, as closed and complete as a varnished oil painting, or perhaps a delicate clock mechanism. So, if, I mean, if you, I'm really reading into it, but for Gibbons' quote, he was kind of like, this is the book. There should be nothing after this. This is a finite story. It's done. I don't know if Gibbons would be super stoked about it, but HBO was, and everybody else loved it. I see something here that Dave Gibbons was, quote, blown away by the tale. Oh, good. Okay. So he has shorn off his opinion that this should be a standalone story. But I think it's fair to say Mr. Moore does not. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure he's <laughs> not a fan. And I would agree with like Dave Gibbons that the, the book is this closed story. It's kind of perfect in that way that it's closed. But I think any story, you should tell a story if you earn it. And it's a, a story worth being told. And yeah. Watchmen, the series, is a great story. And yeah. it's, nice. it's told well. And that's the main reason why I love it. It's like it tells its own story in that world. Well, and what's interesting is, you know, that was Dave... Gibbons and Alan Moore's take on the graphic novel. They did right. everything that was their that was their telling. Lindelof felt the same way about doing this show because HBO wanted another season. They're like, do more, do more. And he said, mm-hmm. if you do another season, I don't want to be involved. 
And it was just because this was the story he had to tell. Yeah. And he's basically like, if someone else wants to pick up the showrunner mantle and do another season, a new interpretation, a new whatever, go for it. I give my blessing. But HBO is basically like, it's hard to conceive without Lindelof being involved. So they basically just more or less repositioned it as a limited run series. So I think, you know, Lindelof kind of had this same idea where it's like, you know, here we are, was it 30 years, 40 years after the original, he had a concept, but his was also a finite concept. Okay, well, I Mm -hmm. have this idea, we're going to do this, and he's done with it. So who knows, maybe in like 10, 15 years, someone else will kind of pick it up. I think to our continued point, the more things change, the more they say the same. I think you could easily pick this idea up and re-examine it at a different time period and get a new kind of story and it'd be really interesting. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's kind of cool. Additionally, this show, a lot of accolades, 26 nominations. It's won 11 awards, including you know, as a limited series, lead actress for Regina King, supporting actor for Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, uh, also writing for a series, limited series. So it's definitely gotten a lot of great accolades, which is which is awesome. A few of the things we do want to talk about, and then we can wrap up with kind of the legacy overall of Watchmen. There are other real-life superhero properties that are out there that you have to imagine took inspiration from Watchmen, even though I don't know that any of the creators have said that explicitly. And Ben, you had captured, I think, a great little list of some of these movies. And shows, sorry, movies and shows. Yeah, totally. I think there's just a lot of movies that came out after uh, the Watchmen movie, but also, I mean, after... This novel that, again, like made that really grounding in, in realism that made Watchmen so strong. This is a goofy movie. This is a cult classic movie. But 1999's Mystery Men, <laughs> I love this movie. so freaking weird, but I love this movie. It's got Dane Cook as the Waffler, sure. but Ben Stiller. I mean, it's a really ben cool Stiller, cast. Yeah. Janine Garofalo. It's so 90s. <laughs> it's a very 90s movie. One of my favorite superhero movies of all time, 2000's Unbreakable with Bruce Willis. That's a really grounded, realistic one. 2008's Hancock with uh, Will Smith. Which is, uh, I mean, he's got superpowers, but it's still like a super flawed hero, uh, mm. which I think takes stuff from Watchmen. So Kick-Ass, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I lo- that's a really fun movie. But what's fun is I just watched Kick-Ass maybe like, I don't know, three weeks ago. I was interested. When Aaron Taylor Johnson is getting picked up from the hospital by his dad after his big accident, he's reading Watchmen in the hospital. Oh, nice. <laughs> which I thought was great. <laughs> super great. I think Kick-Ass is the movie that a lot of people think of. I know that for yeah. me was my my first introduction to this idea of like a normal person being a superhero. Totally. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Super darkly flawed superhero is Logan in 2017. Sort of X-Men continuation. Uh, Wolverine and Professor X are the last two and both have some serious freaking problems being the last X-Men left behind. And then, of course, like the first thing that came for you is Kick-Ass. For me, the first thing that came to mind is Amazon's The Boys which I love that TV series. This is a dark, super messed up TV show. Deeply flawed people, believable world, totally messed up superheroes. It's funny, it's hilarious, it's dark, it's so well done, so well written. I feel like Boys is a very solid spiritual connector. Even the corporatism that Adrian Mm -hmm. V has of turning everyone into a toy line uh, is in the Boys. Another one on Amazon, it, uh, it's animated. It's not grounded very well in reality, but it's similar of like kind of psychotic superheroes is Invincible. It's like Robert Kirkman's oh, interesting. Okay. superhero. Mm. It's like an animated series. I think there's a season out. But yeah, it's very Watchmen-esque in that you've got flawed and dark superheroes. And then there's another superhero property that takes a lot of inspiration from Watchmen 
Pixar's The Incredibles. Oh, sure. Mm. The story of The Incredibles is that superheroes have been outlawed, and there is a former hero who is killing off a bunch of – it's actually kind of a dark movie, if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bunch of superheroes that are killed off, and um, and they have to come out of hiding. I mean, it's very clearly they took some inspiration from Watchmen. Good call. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. That's awesome. That, that's a great list. And I, I keep hearing good things about The Boys. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet because I am superheroed out. But I feel like when I'm <laughs> in the mood, that definitely is one that I think would be a lot oh, yeah. of fun to uh, pick up. And then, Ben, you also wanted to talk about the idea of, okay, we've talked about real-life superhero movies, but what about real-life superheroes? Yeah, that's like a whole thing. Like, And I, I feel like I remember when, when Watchmen came out, there were a lot of stories, like news stories, of like, oh, here are these cities' local real superheroes. And I had never heard of that before, that like cities had people – really trying to be vigilantes and not just like Florida man doing dumb stuff on the news, like real people trying to do good. Yeah. There's actually a documentary in the director's cut of Watchmen from the 2009 version uh, titled Real Superheroes, Real Vigilantes, which like talks about all these real superheroes across the country. I won't go through the entire list because it'll be exhausting, but like a lot of American cities and even in the UK have like amateur superheroes who are not just like going out pulling cats out of the tree. But, like, stopping crimes in the middle of it. You know, we, we mentioned in the Seattle area, in the Pacific Northwest, you've got El Caballero, Midnight Sun, and the most famous Phoenix Jones. Is actually He's in the documentary. He's been in a lot of news. Who, for a long time, did not reveal his identity. Right. But when I moved to Seattle in 2014, I had learned that there were actual superheroes here. And I was like, I'm sorry, what now? Like, it was... <laughs> One of those like surreal things of moving to Seattle where I was like, okay, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm in for a, an interesting experience coming from middle state Illinois. Right. And so Phoenix kind of helped form like a local Avengers. It was called the Rain City Superhero Movement that had like yeah. eight or nine superheroes in it. And they stopped like carjackings and robberies and like helped track down criminals and stuff. He's been injured in the line of duty, so yeah. to speak. And he actually right? like worked with the police. Like he would, a lot of what he did was like report accurate details sure. to the police. So it's like, again, it was very much this sort of, you know, Batman sort of works with Commissioner Gordon and the police force, but it's like an odd relationship. And that was playing out in real life. It's the promise of Watchmen, right? Like that they saw Superman, read the Superman comic and wanted to do it in real life. Yeah. But, you know, that's oh, actually yeah. real people doing it, which is, you know, it's kind of wild. Just some others for major cities I'll run through. Uh, Crimson Fist is in Atlanta with Metadata, his wife. Wall Creeper and Zen Blade are in Denver. The Watchman and Moon Dragon are in Milwaukee. And uh, Terrifica and the Dark Guardian are both in New York and a little, you know, bleeding over into, into Joyzy. And then Dragonheart is uh, down in Miami. And those are just the major cities. There's a lot of these people out there doing their thing. You know, Corey, you wanted to talk about impact and legacy. I kind of, you know, as we just mentioned, the fact that there are actual IRL superheroes lends a little credence to this idea that there's a lasting legacy. But what else really stands out to you on Watchmen's impact on culture? It had a huge, it was it was like a giant squid was dropped on the comic book industry. <laughs> like it, it, it did change everything there, you know, more mature, more complex stories. Like the Sandman series from Neil Gaiman is pretty directly attributable to Watchmen mm. and Alan Moore's stuff. And, and then also like all of modern superhero media in some way takes from Watchmen, you know, that we mentioned the DC movies. I mean, Zack Snyder 
started the DC movies, you know, he kind of helped kicked off the now somewhat defunct DC universe, you know, and, and a lot of that influence came from Watchmen. I still but want my Nicolas the, Cage Superman movie. Yeah, yeah, that may not Someday. happen now. Dang it. <laughs> In the, in the MCU, I mean, the MCU started out pretty grounded and, and Watchmen-esque of, you know, like superheroes in the real world kind of thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it just – and since, like, it seems like 90% of pop culture is superheroes now, for better or worse, it, it's had a huge impact. One, It's a little bit of a bummer, though, because Alan Moore has kind of a complicated – feeling with the Watchmen and, and its legacy and, and his other superhero works. So I have a quote from him. Well, his first quote is he's like, I am really in a bad mood about superheroes. And this was like <laughs> a few years back. And so here, here's his quote on kind of the legacy of Watchmen. I despaired of the effect that Watchmen had on the comics industry because what I'd hoped that people would take from it was the approach to storytelling the worldview, the approach to reality as a web of coincidences and chance remarks. But I think what they took from it was Rorschach. What they took from it was this guy's really violent and he's psychopathic. Therefore, let's make all the characters violent psychopaths. For a long time, looking at comics was like being in a hall of mirrors in a fun fair where you can see ugly, distorted reflections of yourself. Mm. Which I actually kind of agree. Like, the part of Watchmen I like the least is how violent and cynical it is. And it kind of is a bummer that that was such a thread and still is in a lot of ways throughout comics. Right. But I disagree with Alan Moore that there are a lot of great comic books that do the Watchmen thing like Sandman is like that. There's a lot of modern comics like Paper Girls um, by a lot of different creators doing really interesting things in the medium. So I think Watchmen did open that up a lot, but I agree that it did somewhat have a negative impact as well. Yeah, I think uh, the the huge focus on anti-hero parts of superhero culture, and I attribute a huge failing of the DC cinematic universe to the fact that they leaned so heavily into that. And I think, and Corey, we've talked about this before, I think one of the crowning achievements of MCU, especially the early phases, you know, all the way up to Thanos was like, they were fun. They were Mm -hmm. jokey. They were comical. They were bright. They were engaging. Like they weren't dour, dark, despair kind of stories. And it's like, we keep getting that with every Batman reboot and it just weighs on you. Yeah, as good as that the the most recent Batman movie was, I, I did find it like a bummer. It's like, man, I've we've had a lot of like realistic, dour Batman, the psychopath, violent Batman. You yeah. know, it, I'd like to see something different. So it is, it is there is a, a strong thread throughout, right? Yeah, and I think the the last thing I would personally say about the impact is, again, it's been billed as the Citizen Kane of comic books, and I think. One of the things that's so hard in retrospect, if you don't know that history, is what it lends to the medium that then becomes socialized and common, and you don't realize it's such a big deal. So it's like a modern audience going back to watch Citizen Kane. You're like, I don't get it. What, what's what's this movie about? Why is this important? Big deal. But you didn't realize what came before that and how it changed so much that now that is a common part of storytelling to go out of sequence, to start at the end and then work backward and, you know, to have these like camera angles that were unheard of. Like that's that's not new, but much in the same way you can go back to The Matrix and be like, yeah, of course, a, a lot of action movies do this thing now. Well, no one did it before The Matrix, right? Like that was a thing. Mm-hmm. 
So even if you don't like the property, the you know the movie, like you have to kind of appreciate what it did for storytelling in that medium going forward. And I think that's one of the things that could easily be lost if you don't have that context with Watchmen. Yeah, for sure. All right, gents, is there anything else we need to cover for contemporary culture? Think so. I think I want to go like maybe create new life in another galaxy or something. Okay. <laughs> Are you bored with this podcast and you're just ready to yeah. move on? <laughs> I'm, I'm losing touch. <laughs> you guys seem like ants to me. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. You know, the proverbial clock is about to strike midnight, which signifies a time when we deliver our ultimate opinions upon the podcast waves and salvas of mutually assured judgment. On how Watchmen holds up today. Let's head to math class where it all ends, it still begins, <laughs> and it remains as it ever was. Oh my God. So we're in math class. How does Watchmen hold up today in 2023? We can focus mostly on the graphic novel, but certainly if you want to talk about the other properties that stem from it, please do. But the graphic novel, uh, Corey, do you want to kick us off? How does it hold up today? Fantastically. It, it, it does hold up super well, like, especially for a property that is so grounded in the 80s. It's so much about like Cold War paranoia, but it still speaks to today in a lot of, a lot of the ways that you all mentioned. It is designed for repeat viewing, and it kind of stands the test of time because a lot of the themes are universal themes. Absolutely. Benjamin, what do you have to say? I think of all the topics we've done on 80s High, Watchmen holds up one of the best. And when I say holds up, I just mean relevant in today's context. The material is accessible. The material isn't horrifically, insultingly dated to a lot of different people. We've covered a few that are problematic, but like, same as it ever was. The issues that Moore tackled are still as critical and challenging to solve today as they ever were. I love... Just the setting and how the, the world building, that, that uniqueness of it feeling so real, feeling heavy, is, is great. And that realness also goes with the characters. Even though they're like these superheroes, they're written in a way that you believe these people would have donned costumes and gone out and fight. And like I said earlier, like 95% of their conversations are like real normal things and not about the critical world-ending Thanos kind of thing coming. It anchors so well. It's written so well. I made the bombastic statement that um, every condition of human existence is covered at some point in this plot. Might be a little over the top, but it is pretty, uh, pretty thorough in its exploration of what it means to be alive and die. I don't know, before, now, right now, in the future, all those things together. Didn't we just have congressional hearings about alien life forms? I'm just we saying. We did, right? I'm just, just saying. We just I'm just did. saying. We may not be that far off from psychic squids. That's So that's the storytelling I love about it. I think the only thing, and I didn't want to like burn a bunch of time on this, but like I, I'm not a super big fan necessarily of the art in it. Like it, it, It's a little... Um, muted and one note there are ideas that are translated really cool visually like when you're on mars and you see manhattan's i don't know what you call it his clock spaceship that he makes you see that visualized that's cool but like the artistic skill necessarily talent i feel like age is a little it's dated in modern comics from the artwork you see today but besides that i love this is one of my favorite stories in graphic novels and comics it's exciting uh, i'm not sure i can sit down and read it five more times to finally understand it. 
but I'll watch the movie over and over again. And you guys have, you know, inspired me that when HBO comes back on the next round of our streaming cancellation and renewal, I'll watch the whole thing. I love it. Great topic. Great pick. It was, it was exciting to read again, but um, we're going to need like some hugs and some ice cream and some candy after this one. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can't help but be impressed by the sheer audacity of this story, the scope, the scale, the narrative craft, the genre changing impact we've talked about. And as we've mentioned, the unfortunate absolute relevance for 2023 that it still carries. In fact, I would say it's so relevant that I was very overwhelmed and put off by the subject matter when I was reading it for the very first time. I don't know that I was in a receptive headspace for it as I was reading it uh, recently. It is a punishing story in terms of the depths of despair, gloom, death, impending disaster. And it was really hard to look at some current affairs in the world and then want to consume this kind of content. It's definitely stuff that I have learned to meter out in digestible amounts, and I just don't have a huge appetite for that. So that was challenging. And I would say as a cautionary tale for anyone who's interested in picking this up maybe for the first time and checking it out. But again, the writing and storycraft, absolutely impressive. The turns of phrase, the way that the stories dovetail seamlessly into each other, those magical synchronicities that came up. Even the pace is really good. I think the only time the the pace really does suffer is a lot of those ancillary things. They do kind of weigh on you, especially, Ben, to your point about Black Freighter. You're like, how does this even tie in? What's going on? Why am I learning about a pirate on a dead man raft? I don't understand what's going on right now. It's particularly punishing for the first time reader because you're like, yes. what in the world oh, is this about? So many <laughs> yes. gut punches. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's like, it's hard enough to, it, in its accessibility. And then you kind of map onto it this sort of like, I don't know, existential angst or this like, yeah, it's it, mm-hmm. it was a challenge. Um, but again, I'm a sucker for stories that play on the concept of time. And this really achieves that on many levels, which I always, always appreciate and was a huge fan of. You know, there's a few things that didn't hold up. Uh, I would say personally, the volume of words was a lot for me. Maybe it's because I had to read this on the timetable and I didn't feel like I could take it in at my own pace. Uh, It would have hit differently, but I just felt it unrelenting in terms of all of the text. The, you know, I read Last Ronin and I kind of blasted through that. I've read the Walking Dead compendiums. These are massive tomes. And I felt like I got through one of those compendium tomes faster than I did a chapter because there's so much jammed into it. Like, I'm like, how is there artwork? There's a thousand words in this one panel. It just felt like a lot and it was a bit overwhelming. I'm sure I missed a lot of the nuances. It's no wonder Moore's like, yeah, read it five, six times, then maybe you'll start to grasp it. Uh, We already talked about the portrayals of the female characters, and they were disappointing. I don't have much more to say, uh, although I do appreciate the modern context. As you mentioned, Corey, that the 2019 series does give a lot more agency to female characters, and it's actually centered on a black female lead, uh, which is great. And I just want to keep seeing more of that in modern storytelling. But yeah, overall, it's clear to see why this is called the Citizen Kane of comics. Uh, I so appreciate what it did for the art form, and I would say continues to do. But for some of the reasons I mentioned, it's not a property I'm likely to return to because of how heavy and punishing the subject matter is. So if you'll excuse me, I have to go listen to a bunch of true crime podcasts now. Something lighter. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote that part and I was like, I listen to a lot of true crime, but you know, whatever. That's awesome. It's a different kind of dread, so. Different kind, yeah, for sure. (laughs) 
Corey, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks so much for recommending this. You introduced me to a thing I, as I mentioned, literally knew nothing about beyond the actual title. And, you know, you're a dear friend of mine, so it's always good to see you. I haven't gotten to see you in a while. Summer's very busy for all of us. We're all doing all the things. Yeah, thanks again for having me on, Ben. Chris, it's, it's always fun to come and chat 80s high. This is one of my favorite things of all time to chat about. So it was really great to be able to deep dive into Watchmen. And I appreciate it. Yay. It was great having you. Thank you for your expertise, especially in the history of comics. But your perspective on this IP really made the episode heroic, some might say. Thanks for your help. We have our last reveal before we close this episode out. It's been long. Thanks for sticking with us. But this is kind of a big thing. Season four is going to be a little bit shorter than you're used to. We're only going to be back for eight episodes. So you might say we're graduating senior year a little early. You know, we got extra credits. We did some summer work. <laughs> we dropped a few things there. We, we, we did our head work. But we're going to need to wrap up the season format sooner than we expected. It's good reasons, don't worry, but uh, it's just not going to allow us to commit to a season format basically beyond the end of 2023. But we wanted to give kind of a proper send-off to our show format in terms of seasons, but we're not necessarily saying goodbye forever. We're leaving the door to high school a little bit ajar, so at some point we have that ability to come back in and revisit some other cool property in some fashion. So we want to leave that open-ended, but give you a little bit of heads up. That's what you can expect from this season. So we do hope you stay subscribed to us after we wrap up season four. As always, we continue to appreciate your listenership and we're very excited what is in store for this season Because we are recording on a compressed schedule, however, we're going to do it a little bit differently. Ben and I already know all eight topics for this season. Typically, we do a back and forth of selecting and we reveal live on the show, hey, this is what we're doing. But we're recording these on a weekly basis. We're jamming everything in uh, for time reasons. So we're still going to reveal to you what the next episode will be at the end of each of these. But it's not going to be a surprise to us as the hosts. Well, Ben, you have the honor of telling our listeners what to expect on the next episode of 80s High. I do. I'm so excited for this honor. I'm thrilled on so many layers. My excitement is like an onion. Because I thought of this topic like when we first conceived of this show, but then we found this nice little groove of like, we want to remind you of the things you forgot you loved in the 80s. But it's senior year. No rules, baby. I do not care. I'm going to do the biggest, baddest stuff I love from the 80s that a lot of people also loved. And I don't care. So we're swinging high. We're staying in the same country. We're staying in the same year. 1986, we're driving 90 minutes southeast from Northampton, Alan Moore's town of birth, to London as we continue our British pop culture invasion of America. That journey, that drive, is going to be long and winding. It's going to be full of twists and turns, dead ends, strange characters along the way. But maybe we'll make it to the end of that journey to enlist the help of pop culture icon David Bowie. What? Now you think we're going to enlist David Bowie's help to talk about Let's Dance. (laughs) But it's going to be a different kind of dance. Because we're going to enlist David Bowie's help to remind you, listener, of the babe. That's right. What babe? We're going back to Jim Henson's 1986 fantasy musical, sending Jennifer Connelly Sarah to rescue her infant half-brother Toby from David Bowie's masochistic labyrinth. 
From blue wieners to cod pieces, we are sticking in the same realm, everybody. Sticking in the same realm. Very good. Uh, So, ladies, gents, and everything in between and beyond, assemble your band of helpful misfits and practice juggling your crystal spheres as we're getting lost in the labyrinth on the next episode of... 80s High. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.